Hi! Welcome to the Romance Me Podcast. This is Erica. And I'm Em. And we'd like to say a special hello to our number one and only fan. Sickos never scare me. At least they're committed. (laughs) Is that related to today's story? Yes, sort of. Maybe no. No. It's not from the story, obviously, but I felt like it was appropriate. True that. (laughs) Today, we'll be discussing Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. This story is written as an autobiography from the viewpoint of Jane Eyre, who wishes to be seen and loved for being a person. She manages to improve her station in life, growing from discarded, undereducated girl into an industrious and accomplished governess. Her employer, Edward Rochester, is a passionate and complicated man who treats Jane more as a friend and confident than as an employee. As their relationship grows, a secret of Rochester's comes to light and deconstructs the happiness they have tenuously built, forcing Jane to flee in the night. Although Jane picks up the pieces of her life, she constantly feels pulled to return to Rochester. But when she finally answers the call, what will she find? There will be spoilers beyond this point. And we have a content warning for child abuse. Yay. <laughs> you have I should been not warned. yay child abuse. <laughs> that is not yay. <laughs> That's like the opposite of yay. <laughs> what is the opposite of yay? Yay. <laughs> well, it is backwards. Same backwards as forwards, but. <laughs> Fun with that. I, I like mine. Yee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think yours is more appropriate. <laughs> So, Erica, how do we meet Jane? Like, what's her life like at the start of the story? Okay, this story takes place in Victorian-era England, which is, like, in the mid-1800s or so. Yeah. Jane is the dependent of the Reed family. Her mother died and her father. Her mother and father died. They both died. This is a Disney movie. (laughs) Everyone dies. <laughs> okay. Jane is orphaned as an infant and comes into the care of her uncle Reed, who loves her and cares about her and seemingly dotes on her, probably more than his own children, which causes his wife, her aunt, Mrs. Reed, to feel resentful. But unfortunately, her uncle like i said everyone dies not everyone but (laughs) at the beginning there's a lot of of death in this book particularly (laughs) in the beginning there's a lot of dying her uncle dies but on his deathbed he extracts a promise from his wife to keep jane and care for her as one of her own and of course his wife promises because what else is she gonna do right Mm -hmm. however She resents Jane, does not want her in her life whatsoever, neglects her, abuses her, and allows Jane's cousins to abuse her as well. Jane has cousins, two girls and one boy. The boy, John, is especially nasty. He is 14 and Jane is 10 when the story begins. And he apparently has this habit of sticking out his tongue and acting like he's going to lick her in the face, Uh, forcing her to stand there while he does it. (laughs) That's just... He's torturing her, essentially. She escapes from him, and he throws a book at her, and it hits her, 
and causes her to bleed. And this just finally breaks her. Up until this point, you get the impression she's been very submissive her whole life. Yeah, like a good girl. Feeling upset, but also feeling like, if only I try harder, they'll treat me nicer. Yep. I have to earn my good treatment. This final act of her cousin John causes her to be completely pissed off and she flies at him (laughs) and begins beating his ass. (laughs) I think it's great. Um, It's a great scene. Uh (laughs) But she is pulled from him and she is punished by being locked in the red room. Yeah, the room she fears. Yeah, John, I don't think, got punished. No. But Jane, however... Well, he's the future lord of the manor. He's not going to get punished. Jane is locked in the red room. This is a room that, like you said, she fears. It is the room her uncle died in. And I think used to be the Reed's bedroom. But after her uncle died, the room got locked up and kind of kept as a memorial sort of place. You know, no one goes in there except to clean it and whatnot. Jane is sitting there contemplating her life, trying to figure out, why don't they love me? If my uncle could see this treatment, he would be so upset. And then she starts to worry that she's summoning her uncle's ghost. Doesn't she think she's in hell? Like, I think the the use of the color red is supposed to, like, simulate hell, like... This poor kid. I think so. She gets she gets caught up in like a flight of imagination, I think. She feels like she's in hell. She feels like she's calling her uncle from beyond the grave and then regrets calling him because that's also terrifying. And then she sees a light that makes her think it could be a ghost. And she thinks, oh no, I did. I called him. He's here now, and she starts freaking the fuck out, and she's screaming and crying and yelling, and the servants in the house <laughs> come come and open the door to see what's the matter, even though they were told not to, because they're worried about her, because they're human. One of them is at least remotely kind to her. And then Mrs. Reed comes up, and she yells at them for letting her out, and Jane starts clinging to her and saying oh please please aunt reed don't make me go back in the red room please have mercy nope and her aunt is like fuck you yep and she puts her back in the red room and locks the door yeah and jane is so overcome with this passion and anguish that she ends up passing out when she wakes up she's in a different room And she is attended by Mr. Lloyd, who is an apothecary. Mrs. Reed called the apothecary for her because Jane is no more than a servant to her. And she doesn't rate a doctor. No. (laughs) Although Mr. Lloyd at least shows her like a modicum of kindness. And it's just like, well, if you don't want to be here, where do you want to be? And he puts her on the path to leaving there, which is ultimately what she wants. Yeah, Mr. Lloyd spends some time questioning her to find out, like, the source of her anguish. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, like, Mrs. Reed isn't somehow behind it. Like, just wanting some way to get her out. But, you know, at the same time, it's what Jane wants. She sure shit doesn't want to stay there. I think Mr. Lloyd gave her the idea. Like, I think maybe Mrs. Reed thought 
she had to keep Jane there because she keeps the other girls there. Mm. And she's supposed to treat Jane as one of her own per her late husband's dying wish. And this is some sick manner in which she's doing it. I don't know. But maybe like after she talks to Mr. Lloyd and he suggests that she sends Jane to school, she's all about that idea. Yeah. <laughs> Jane and, and Mrs. Reader of one mind. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Lloyd, he seems really nice. He's like, oh, well, are you, are you happy here? No. <laughs> Would you be happy with your other family? No. There is no other family. <laughs> yeah, because she doesn't think that she has any other relatives. Well, she, she contemplates that her only other relatives are supposedly beggar class. Oh, yeah, because I think Mrs. Reed tells her that. Yeah, and she thinks that would be too hard of a life for her because she's not accustomed to it or whatever. Well, it's just because Mrs. Reed did not think well of her relatives. She poisoned Jane against them. Yeah, she did. What a peach. He asks her, well, would you want to go to school? And she thinks about stories she's heard of school. And she's like, yes, I would probably like school. That sounds like a good idea. Thank you, Mr. Anywhere Lord. would be better than here. And so, <laughs> well, except my beggar relatives. Yes. And the Red Room. So she stays away from. Yeah, I was, I was honestly a little surprised that she would rather stay with Mrs. Reed than go live with her beggar relatives that perhaps might be kinder to her. Well, because, I mean, then what resource really does she have and what recourse? You know what I mean? Sometimes the hell you know versus the unknown. At least with Mrs. Reed, she has a she has a bed. She knows she's getting food and stuff. Mm -hmm. So Mrs. Reed just loves this idea. She's like, hell yes, I'm going to send Jane to school. And she contacts Mr. Brocklehurst, such a name, <laughs> who is the superintendent of Lowood Academy which is a girl's school. It's a very humble charity type school. It's not the type of school that she would likely send any of her other children to. It's exactly what she thinks Jane deserves. Mm -hmm. Mr. Brocklehurst comes to the house to meet Mrs. Reed and interview Jane. Then they can determine whether she can go to the school. At first, he seems, I don't know if kind is the right word, but he seems fine toward Jane like he's questioning her and talking to her and it is it is a little creepy yeah. but he's he's very much like ah yes little pet pat pat on the head and do you do your prayers and do you do your stuff that you're supposed to and he asks her if she's a good girl and Jane doesn't say anything <laughs> because what is she supposed to say she's grown up for 10 years in this house being told she's horrible yeah, and she knows she's not supposed to lie too and Mrs. Reed interrupts and says that Jane is a deceitful, spiteful little thing. And Mr. Brocklehurst, of course, completely believes her. Hmm. Because who wouldn't, right? Well, plus, he wants the income. Because <laughs> Mrs. Reed will pay. I mean, she's paying for her to go. Yeah, not a lot. Well, I guess a lot for the time period. But not a lot in general, because it is a charity school. Still, it's more income than he has already. They have this whole discussion above Jane's head, basically, back and forth. Well, Jane needs to go somewhere that will keep her in her place and whatnot. And Mr. Brocklehurst is, oh, yes, like, all my girls are very poor and modest and humble. And so they decide, yes, yes, Jane will go to this school. And 
Mr. Brocklehurst will be sure to let everyone know to keep an eye on Jane because she's a deceitful little girl. He leaves. (laughs) And then her aunt tries to dismiss her and Jane will not be dismissed. Ever since this bout in the red room, she's been kind of broken. I think she just kind of snaps. Yeah, she's just she's just done. She's so done with the bullshit. I think there was a point where she realized that there was nothing she was going to be able to do to make these people love her. Yeah. And she confronts her aunt and she says to her, I am glad you are no relation of mine. I will never call you aunt again as long as I live. I will never come to see you when I'm grown up. And if anyone asks me how I like you and how you treated me, I will say the very thought of you makes me sick and that you treated me with miserable cruelty. And of course, this freaks Mrs. Reed out because (laughs) she's not accustomed to being told what's what, (laughs) especially by such a small child. Yeah. And she says, like, how can you say these things, Jane? And Jane goes on and she eventually says, you think I have no feelings and that I can do without one bit of love or kindness, but I cannot live so. And you have no pity. Mrs. Reed just starts trembling. She's just so overcome and she just is fraught. And Jane says something like, you better send me to school soon because I don't want to be here anymore. (laughs) And and she's like, yeah, I better do that. You're right. And then she gets up and leaves the room, which makes Jane feel like she finally won a battle. She went up against the big boss. She defeated her. Thus far and defeated her. And she feels good about it. And she feels vindicated. And she feels more powerful, too. She even goes and confronts uh, one of the servants, Bessie. And says like, oh, you don't, you don't scare me anymore because I don't think I'm ever going to be scared ever again. And (laughs) and she makes Bessie promise to be nice to her from then on. I think, and Bessie's really surprised because she didn't realize that her behaviors were interpreted as cruel or mean. Bessie, I think, is kind hearted. I think she just didn't understand how affected Jane was. And kids can be really literal. Yeah, and I think this is a sign of the time period, too, because there really wasn't much of childhood in the Victorian age. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, you're a small adult. And and they don't think about, like, the the emotional maturity of a young person in the way we do today. And childcare was different at that time, too, especially depending on yes. your level, which Mrs. Reed... I, I could be very mistaken, but I mean, it may have been of the time where it's like they basically saw their kids like, what, an hour a day in the evening? In other words, they were somebody else's yeah. problem. So super disconnected. Yeah, no, I got that impression, too, with Mrs. Reed. I feel like she was disconnected from her children because she doesn't really have a very good relationship with any of her children, as you find out later in the story. The first time I read Jane Eyre, I was really surprised, like when Jane is pleading to not be left in that room that Mrs. Reed's like, whatever, get fucked and just leaves. And I'm sitting there going, how can you do that to a small child? Just be like, no, stay. You deserve it. She views Jane as an encroacher in her life. She did not want to adopt Jane. I think that Jane's uncle brought her in to their house against her will. And then not only that, he seemed to dote on Jane more than he doted on his other children, which just infuriated 
Mrs. Reed. No, sadly, Jane could do no right. She put all this hate into a little baby and just never, never changes her mm-hmm. mind. Not even at the very end of the story. But no, I mean, she gets some amount of guilt, but that's not because, you know. I think it's she feels guilty because she's close to death and she's scared of meeting God. No, I agree. <laughs> I don't think she feels guilty because she feels remorse for how she treated Jane. I think she feels guilty because she's worried about her own afterlife. No, I agree. I know that doesn't make for an interesting discussion, but I do agree. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, religion is an interesting part of this book because it's very prominently in the forefront of the story. It informs every aspect of the story. So when I talk about religion... In this episode, at least. (laughs) (laughs) It is not my point of view. (laughs) So eventually Jane gets to go to Lowood. And she travels there by herself. Which most people are kind of a little weirded out by. Yeah. (laughs) That was a choice Mrs. Reed made because Mrs. Reed gives no fucks about Jane. Sadly, yes. She arrives at the school at night and is let in and is just slowly introduced to school life. I think it's the first day that she's there that she meets Helen Burns, who's an older girl who was off to the side reading. And Jane, seeing this other girl alone, seeing that she's reading something because Jane likes to read, was like, oh, I'm going to glom onto her. (laughs) We clearly have similar interests. Starts asking her all these questions. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and Helen is is nice to her, but also initially distant, I think. She's like, excuse you, small child, I'm trying to <laughs> yeah, read I forget book. what the age Thank difference you. is, but there is a bit of an age difference. Or at least there seems to be. No, she is a little bit older because she calls her a great girl, which means an older girl. Helen is Jane's first friend. Yeah, she is. As such, especially, I think, because she's older. She's also a major role model for Jane. Jane is very interested in how Helen endures because Helen, you find, has had a shitty life as well. Shocking. Join the shitty life club. (laughs) But Helen is very pious and ascetic and she just is very much like, this is my burden to bear, therefore I shall bear it. She doesn't think much of the current earthly plane. She's looking forward to her immortal life after she dies. Yeah. I'm suffering through this life so I can go off to the good life in heaven. Yay. And be with my maker. That's Helen's mindset. She kind of impresses a lot of this ideology onto Jane because I don't think Jane really had an extremely clear understanding of any of that before this moment. No. I don't think so. You don't get the impression in the story. I mean, other than her familiarity with hell and what that might be like. Yeah, but I mean, you get hell from going to church or whatever. But as far as like giving up the good things in life now to look forward to being with your maker after you pass. I mean, I doubt she learned that from her existence at the Reeds. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She also meets Miss Temple, who's the headmistress at the school, and greatly admires her. Like, she's very drawn to her. And Miss Temple's very kind and has kind of 
made a friend of Helen Burns. And so as a result, Jane gets to hang out with them sometimes, mm-hmm. which is cool. There's one time when Helen um, is upsetting her teacher and she gets the switch on her neck, which is just, yeah. Ugh. And she just stands there just very, I don't know, the way it's described in the story, it's like it's not happening to her. She's just standing there. Yeah, it's it's hard <laughs> to wrap my mind around. Jane is very upset by this. Like she feels very personally offended on <laughs> Helen's behalf. And protective of her friend and she cares she cares a lot and she talks to her she's like well why how how could you stand this i don't think i could bear a punishment like that and then helen says yeah it would be your duty to bear it if you could not avoid it it is weak and silly to say you cannot bear what is your fate to be required to bear and i think that's kind of helen's whole philosophy on life yeah <laughs> very much life is pain And we must suffer and endure. Like you said, she sees it as her fate, that it cannot be changed. It's already been decided upon. So what else is there but to just, you know, buck up? Jane is not convinced (laughs) at this point. She's still super concerned. She feels like this punishment was really unjust. And Helen is like, no, it is in my nature to be slovenly and lazy and whatnot. And the teacher was right to punish me for that. And Jane just cannot wrap her mind around being punished for being who you are, even though that is her whole life story, being punished Mm -hmm. just for existing. Helen is teaching her, no, that's fine. You can be punished for existing if you you exist in the wrong way. (laughs) Yeah. Then it's totally cool. (laughs) Jane says, I must dislike those who... Whatever I do to please them, persist in disliking me. And she shares her history with the reeds to Helen. She trauma dumps, (laughs) essentially, all that bullshit that she suffered and all the pain that she feels and the anguish that she feels at the mistreatment that she received at the hands of Mrs. Reed. Because I think even at this age, Jane realizes that if Mrs. Reed cared, then John wouldn't have been allowed to torture her. Because he he didn't exactly torture his, his sisters. It's probably because he knew it wouldn't be as acceptable. No. Well, maybe without the quote-unquote whipping girl not there. Who knows how that changed. Helen says, would you not be happier if you tried to forget her severity together with the passionate emotions it excited. So she's like, dude, you are letting this eat you alive. Why don't you just sweep (laughs) it all under the rug? That's what I got out of it. Do you think that was good advice? No, but at this point in the story, it was very in line with other stories of, of the time period where little wretch of a girl goes through torments and trials and has to struggle because suffering makes you more pious and more close to God. And I felt like that was the brand of advice that Helen had to offer. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and I think Jane seeks to internalize that at this point of the story. I think Helen was right to point out that, you know, you're letting this woman get to you. I don't necessarily agree that, no, no, she was right to punish you for not being who she wanted you to be. I think the issue that I have with the advice is that there was no commiseration. Mm. She was very much like, yes, this happened to you and you should just 
not let it get to you. I don't think Helen was unsympathetic, but I think she didn't give sympathy the way I would have wanted if I were Jane. No, Helen's a very detached character. Like, she's very... I don't know if unemotional is the right word. I don't think she's unemotional. I think she's just very austere. You know, she's very concerned with or very devoted to her beliefs, her belief system. And as a result, everything she does is informed by that. And she passes that on to Jane. And I think, too, that that being caring is maybe different now than then. I mean, now, if... If, (laughs) you know, if you were a 10 year old at a boarding school telling your slightly older friend this horrible story of child abuse, they would probably go tell a teacher and then the teacher would get social services involved. But none of that existed back then. This is true. This is very true. So the, the idea of abuse didn't exist in the way it does now. This is very true. Yeah, no, it didn't. The idea of authority is huge. People in authority could do basically whatever the fuck yeah, they want. because there's nobody telling them otherwise. Absolute power. Yeah. And, and in some cases, like Helen seems to think, that authority is granted by yeah. God. Yeah. That is the role God has placed them in, in this world. They're doing what they're meant to do. Yeah. And God has placed poor little Jane in her role, and she is meant to suffer. So cope as best you can, Jane. We're rooting for you. That's uh, Yeah, I mean, that's kind of <laughs> Helen's point of view, I think. I don't think it's that she doesn't feel bad for Jane. I think it's just that she doesn't realize she should feel bad for Jane. I think Helen kind of offers the only hope that she has available to Jane. Yeah, which is eventually you'll <laughs> die and it'll be better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is an interesting message coming from a child. True story. So some time passes, and finally Mr. Brocklehurst shows up. (laughs) Jane is very worried. She knows Mrs. Reed has poisoned Mr. Brocklehurst against her. And she knows that if Mr. Brocklehurst sees her, he's going to let everyone know what a horrible little girl she is. This school has no funding. As far as we can tell. Well, there's the tuition paid, which he mismanages, and... They don't get the benefit of any funding. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think it was when Temple treated them to, like, some bread and cheese. Like, that was a legit treat. Yeah, and it was a legit issue, too, because Temple got bitched out over it. How dare you splurge? They get hardly any food. They're starving. They're forced to play outside for an hour every day. It doesn't matter what type of temperature it is, but they do not have the clothing for certain types of temperature. But Mr. Brocklehurst is a complete hypocrite because he's all about, yes, the little girls at my school must have their hair plain and short and no curls whatsoever, even if their hair is naturally curly and they must be wearing poor clothes and concerning themselves with God and being pious and humble and whatnot. But then he brings his <laughs> wife and daughter in and they're like all dressed yeah. in their finery. And it's like they're, they look at these girls at the school, like yeah. they're little well, aliens. Yeah. And he doesn't see the different, like he doesn't see how that but, is but bad. But by the same rules. <laughs> Essentially. Yeah. You know, you, they you can't expect them to endure as these. Mind. Poor children do. 
these girls who have, by that society standards, basically no men to stand up for them. Because Helen has a father, but he remarried. And clearly doesn't give much of a crap for his first daughter. And besides, it's God's will. God put these poor children in these circumstances. It's not his problem. Nope. Take it up with God. A.K.A. Charlotte Bronte. (laughs) Unfortunately, he does see Jane. (laughs) He pulls up a stool and makes her stand up on a stool in front of everybody and then announces to the entire school about how Jane is a terrible human being. And he gives this long-ass speech about how horrible Jane is, and he says, This girl, who might be one of God's own lambs, is a little castaway, not a member of the true flock, but evidently an interloper and an alien. Alien. You must be on your guard against her. You must shun her example. If necessary, avoid her company, exclude her from your sports, and shut her out from your converse. Which is exactly what Jane does not want. She finally has society. That's exactly what she was worried about. Yeah. She has people who treat her like a normal human being. (laughs) And she's standing on this stool and she's remembering Helen with the switch. And she's trying to live up to Helen's example. Even though she's just embarrassed and angry and upset and all the things. She is. She's all the things. And Mr. B says she has to stand up there for half an hour. (laughs) Bye. And he fucks off. Lessons continue around her while Jane is standing on this stool being humiliated because public humiliation is an okay punishment for a young child back in Victorian era Mm. England. Yeah. And other places. There's a point in class where Helen passes by her and she kind of feels like positive (laughs) vibes coming off of Helen. They make her feel supported. Helen's like, it's okay. You're doing right. You're accepting your lot in life. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Have a cookie. I mean, cheese. No, I mean, have some cold water. It does give Jane some comfort, I think, knowing that Helen understands, even though she doesn't see it the same way. (laughs) I'm sure in that instance, it was great to be seen by a friend. Oh, yeah. And then afterward, Miss Temple is very kind to her and consoles her and gets her side of the story and even sends a letter to Mr. Lloyd to corroborate Jane's version of the events that happened and does some research into it makes Jane realize, you know, it's okay. Mr. B is an asshole to everyone. Nobody believes him. She even goes so far as to get proof from Mr. Lloyd that Jane is not a little demon child and then presents it to the school saying Jane is exonerated. Which is awesome and fucking brave of Miss Temple, I felt. Miss Temple has (laughs) ovaries of steel, man. There are several points. Mr. B comes in and he starts going up one side and down the other with Miss Temple. And she just stands there and like, okay, yeah, mm -hmm, you're right. mm -hmm." Which that's not too different from Helen either. Just standing there and taking it. Wait until he leaves. (laughs) Something shiny will happen. He'll get distracted and then he's not my problem anymore. Although in Miss Temple's case, I think that she is a little different from Helen because she does take action to improve things. That is her ability being both more in control and an adult i don't know that helen would or wouldn't if she felt empowered but she doesn't get the chance to because now typhus has taken hold at lowood because of the poor circumstances of the students the crappy diet and whatnot hygiene many of them die it's terrible yes at the same time helen is also sick 
But Helen doesn't have typhus, she has consumption. We learn that she's now dying. When Jane finds out that Helen is is dying, that her illness is that severe, she sneaks into Miss Temple's room because that's where Helen is staying now. She says she's come to visit and Helen says something like, oh, I see you came to say goodbye. Yeah. Because Helen knows she's yeah, dying. She's aware. And she kind of consoles Jane about her own death. Like she's just, yeah, it's fine though. I'm looking forward to being dead. Yeah. It'll be great. This is what I wanted. And they give each other kisses and hugs and they fall asleep in each other's arms and it's very sweet. And then in the morning, Helen has died. And then we get a time jump. Time warp. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do that again. We learn after the typhus epidemic at the school, people in power were much disturbed and outraged and did some looking into things and discovered Mr. B was not managing the school properly. He loses the power that he had and the school is improved and they get more, more funding, more improving, more food, better resources. Still humble, but better. Of course, maybe if they had taken an interest before, then (laughs) that was after the fact. Well, I guess they all figured it was fine until they realized it wasn't fine and it needed a big event to show that it wasn't fine. Until suddenly like 30 children die and they're like, oh, whoops. Yeah, well, that's the other thing, though. In that time period, there wasn't the same sort of uh, restrictions and enforcement of of things that there are now. There aren't the same laws and protections in place for children. They didn't understand hygiene the way we do now. So they wouldn't, yeah, they wouldn't have understood. Oh, yeah, of course not. But I mean, even just the fact that they were half starved and wearing threadbare clothing in the wintertime. Those things certainly did not help. (laughs) (laughs) That could have been improved. (laughs) I mean, it may have helped the immune systems of those children. It's like, oh, the flood is coming. Here's a fly swatter. It's not going to help, you know. We get a time jump of eight years and Jane is at Lowood these eight years. She spends six of them as a student and two as a teacher. She's now a more accomplished lady. She knows things. She doesn't drink and she knows things. (laughs) Her accomplishments include speaking French and being an artist. She's apparently a really good artist. There are several points in the story where people are impressed with her work. Jane, of course, is humble and modest. Eventually, Miss Temple gets married and leaves, and Jane is just not happy now. She was content for a long time, but she realizes that now that Miss Temple is gone, she just doesn't have the same vibe at Lowood now. She needs a new vibe. Because that was part of her family. That was the last member of her family. I mean, we don't really know too many other people that she's close to there and what happens to them. So she's just like, well, is this where I want to be yeah. for the rest of my life? Or or what? <laughs> she starts thinking of like these lofty goals and freedom and freedom. such and then very firmly stamps her foot down on all those things and says no 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 i just need a new servitude that is the thing she uses her <laughs> education and that just yeah <laughs> but the thing is is she doesn't see this as like improving her station in life or whatnot she's very much like i was born to a life of servitude and i need a new yeah. one <laughs> she ends up advertising her skills as a potential governess for a young child and i think she says like under the i forget what the age limit is like under the age of 14 or something like that because jane is only 18 at this point and she figures you know older than that would be maybe too old for me to be a authority figure i think that is fair 
(laughs) I remember in high school, we had like a young teacher who was like 22 and we were like 17 and 18. It was weird. Yeah. Some of those new teachers, (laughs) I was like, you are like five minutes older than I am. (laughs) We will eat you alive. It didn't help sometimes when they tried to be the friend. Yeah, I know. Jane advertises out as a governess and she is hired by a Mrs. Fairfax for a young girl under the age of 10. All of this happens over the course of like months. Everything that I'm saying is very slow in the scheme of time passing. Yeah. Jane Eyre is not a a (laughs) slender book. Well, there's that. There's the bulk of the book, but then there's also just she had to write a letter and then the letter had to get posted and it had to be advertised and then people had to read it and then they had to send a letter and then it had to get mailed. Do, 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 do. You know, it's just a big old thing. And we get to hear all about it. No email. (laughs) No texting. No indeed.com. Nope. (laughs) So she's very excited. She accepts this position offered by Mrs. Fairfax. Jane is getting ready to leave, but before she leaves Lowood, she is visited by Bessie. Yay, Bessie. Remember Bessie from when she lived at the Reeds. And Bessie has kind of worried about Jane ever since she left, I think. (laughs) The one person at Gateshead who worried about her. Kind of kept her in her heart. And she's like, you know, before I lose track of her and am unable to find her again, (laughs) there's no social media. (laughs) it's not like she can add her on facebook or anything so before i lose track of her and never see her again i want to visit her and see how she's doing and whatnot we find out bessie has gotten married and has kids they have a little visit and it's very nice i think jane realizes that bessie actually cared for her this whole time and is happy and perhaps a little gratified by this bessie asks her if she's ever heard anything more about her family And Jane says no. And then Bessie tells her, well, you know, like a year after you left, (laughs) Mr. Eyre came asking about you. Mrs. Reed told him you were away at school. And so he left. And Jane is like, oh, that's interesting. And Bessie's like, yeah. And he didn't seem poor either. (laughs) And Jane's like, huh. I wonder, like, if he had tried harder in that moment. She's away at school. Which school? He traveled all that way. (laughs) She said it was a school 50 miles away. Even so. And he had to leave to go to India or something at that point. We've established that letter writing is a thing. (laughs) He couldn't have just sent... He didn't have time to make a whole day's journey out to see Jane and then a whole day's journey back to meet his boat, I guess. That's why you write a letter and you give it to the postman or whatever the Victorian equivalent would be. And then the letter (laughs) goes on on its own. (laughs) It goes forth, powered and (laughs) propelled by people to its destination. (laughs) In a somewhat snarky tone. Well, it's funny that you mention that, Em, because he does at some point write a letter and send it to the fucking Reed's house. And Mrs. Reed writes him back and says, no, Jane died of typhus. Uh, Sorry. And I don't mean that in the endearing way. (laughs) No. She's an asshole. (laughs) Yeah, Mrs. Reed is a prime (laughs) asshole. Like you said earlier, she doesn't just have one, she is one. Of course, she's fictitious, so maybe she doesn't. I don't know. I don't want to talk about fictitious assholes right now. Well, no, actually, unfortunately, we're going to continue to talk about fictitious assholes. I mean, this is just a thing in this book. There's lots of assholes in this book. (laughs) I was just going to say, that's sort of inevitable. I think Mrs. Reed is is probably the worst. Yeah. 
Up to this point, yes. As far as we know. Of course, Mr. B is pretty damn bad because he is abusing all those young girls. It's kind of hard to choose sometimes. I mean, is it the number of children (laughs) or the severity of abuse that matters more? I don't know. Okay, moving on. Jane travels to Thornfield, which is the place where she will be working. And when she gets there, everyone is nice. She meets Mrs. Fairfax, who at first she thinks is the lady of the house, but is soon told that Mrs. Fairfax is the head housekeeper. She's the manager of the house, and she's a somewhat related to the master of the house, but she doesn't presume upon this relationship whatsoever and likes to keep things where she's just, you know, an employee and whatnot. Jane meets her student, Adele, who is like six or seven years old, and she's a very cute little girl from France. Initially in the story, she mostly just speaks French. And luckily, my Kindle has a translate option, so I could just highlight the text, and then it would tell me what Adele said. It was great. (laughs) This is something, and I don't know if it's because maybe Bronte felt like enough people knew French that it wasn't a big deal, which maybe they did. I don't know. But oftentimes in more modern books, when someone speaks a foreign language, the author will paraphrase or use context clues to let you know what that person Mm -hmm. said. But Bronte does not do this. So be aware, you may need to translate if you don't speak French. Well, a lot of times they'll have little footnotey things and then you flip to the back. There were no footnoties or anything. But it was fine because I could just highlight and google i was gonna say my copy did but it's a physical copy i guess it wasn't google it gives you an option to translate yeah i mean at that time a lot of the people who who did read especially for leisure probably did yeah they probably did that's why i wanted to make sure to say the time period in which this was published it probably wasn't a big deal yeah so so many things have changed Uh, United States citizens are monolingual. Not all, but a lot of them. Unilingual. A lot of us. Yeah. Adele is Mr. Rochester's ward, and Mr. Rochester is the master of the house, but he's currently away, and he travels a lot and spends very little time at Thornfield. Jane kind of settles in. She gets a tour through the house, and when they're upstairs, up by the roof, she hears this very odd laugh. And it's kind of creepy, and it's not really like a normal laugh whatsoever. And she asks Mrs. Fairfax about it, and Mrs. Fairfax listens, and she's like, <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's Grace Poole. She's just kind of weird. It's fine. Okay. Grace Poole is someone who works at Thornfield and kind of just keeps to herself. She spends most of her time up in the third floor of the manor, and doesn't really talk to anybody it's just kind of her own person i kind of love grace pool (laughs) jane is a little (laughs) creeped out i think her curiosity has been piqued but she's also like a little okay that's a little weird but all right i guess i'll take your word for it that everything's fine and remember at this point she's completely invested in helen's worldview so she's just kind of like, well, I guess if it's a demonic being sent to kill me, it's just my lot in life, and I'll go get to meet my maker. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> no, she's not that passive, but yeah. Not for lack of trying. Some months pass, and it's now winter time, and she gets an unexpected day off because Adele isn't feeling well. I think it was Mrs. Fairfax that needed to post a letter, but Jane offers to walk it to town for her which is a two-mile walk, and it's described in the book as a nice little afternoon journey, you know. (laughs) Oh, it's a nice little afternoon walk. Well, walking was more of a thing. Yeah. 
It is crazy how much this girl walks. No cars, no horse. There is so much walking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know. I know. And I I mean, I've read plenty of of books from this and related, you know, nearby time periods where it's like, yeah, you do walk. It's pastime. I just thought it was funny (laughs) that it was described as a little walk. (laughs) Like, I kind of wondered, like, what would be a big walk for her? Especially in the middle of, I mean, it's... (laughs) It's fucking January and it's there's snow and ice on the ground. And she's like, oh, yeah, I'll just take a little four mile jog. You get moving, you get warm. It'll be fine. It's less of a thing. (laughs) Jane's about halfway to town and she's just kind of like enjoying herself, you know, looking around. And she's at the top of the hill and she sits on a stile next to the road and She's looking down one side and sees the house of Thornfield and, oh, it's so pretty. And she looks down the other side and sees the town. And She's just kind of, you know, chilling, enjoying her life. Because I think for Jane, you got to find your joy. You got to get your joy where you can, you know. (laughs) As she's sitting there, she kind of has like a little flight of fancy and she hears this sound of a horse and she starts thinking oh it must be this mythological horse or something like that and then she sees a man riding toward her down the road with a dog running beside him and they pass her with no never you mind but then the horse slips on the icy road and both the horse and the man fall i mean obviously the man would fall because he's on the horse and jane being the kind good samaritan that she is goes over and offers her help and he's just kind of Mr. Grumpy Pants. He's just like, no, (laughs) I don't need your help. I will do. And she's like, no, 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 I'm going to help you. And he's like, no, no, you don't need to. I'm fine. And she's like, no, (laughs) I insist. I took a vow of servitude. I am going to serve you whether you want it or not. Consent is not an option. (laughs) And there's a point where she thinks to herself, because she th- she looks at him and she's like, yeah, he's not really very attractive and he's not really very nice. That's why I feel okay insisting. <laughs> he's ugly and rude. I'm going to force him to accept my help. <laughs> if he were hot and gallant, I would feel a little like, oh, okay, never mind then. <laughs> I thought her frame, like her frame of mind there was very funny. No, ugly, rude man. You will accept my help and you will like it. (laughs) He's not necessarily ugly, though. I think he's just very like, oh, what would you call it? Striking. Yeah. And of course, Jane is continually described as plain. Mm. As you know, beauty is the most important thing. So she insists, he starts questioning her, like, why are you out here anyway? (laughs) Like, don't you have somewhere to be, little waif? Leave me the F alone. He finds out that she works at Thornfield and he's like, I don't remember you. Then he learns that she's the governess. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I haven't met you yet. And so the reader picks up on, oh, (laughs) oh, we know who this is. But Jane does not. So Jane helps him get back on the horse. And he fucks off down the road and she continues to town and posts her letter. When she gets back to Thornfield, she realizes things are a little bit different at home. A little changed from what she's used to now. And she sees that same dog sitting in front of the fire. (laughs) And she's like, oh. She realizes 
oh, that grumpy man that I helped is Mr. Rochester, and he's the master (laughs) of the house. Huh. And she even goes so far as to confirm it, I think, with Miss Fairfax, but maybe with one of the other servants, I don't remember. Oh, so who is here? And oh, it's it's Mr. Rochester, and he suffered an injury. And she's like, oh, was it from slipping on ice while riding his horse? Psychic. Yes, it was. How did you know? <laughs> Very interesting. <laughs> she just goes to bed. That's kind of Jane's way. She doesn't really give information she just gets information yeah i mean she does i mean she just sort of (laughs) have it almost it's not magic so much but like premonition sort of thing throughout the story she has a way of getting people to tell her things yeah she seems to she she doesn't bring things up there are several points like she's asked to talk or whatever and she's all okay well ask me (laughs) questions then because i don't know what to tell you to talk of herself just seems (laughs) crazy why would she do that? Surely she has nothing interesting to say. It's kind of funny. A couple days pass and she is summoned to evening tea with Mr. Rochester. And this is the first of many evening teas. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Rochester is very interested in Jane. I don't think she realizes this at this point. She's just kind of like, okay, you're being very weird, but all right then. There's this uncomfortable banter that they have, and maybe he's teasing, maybe he's being rude, but he's very abrupt and moody. He has a very um, fanciful way of talking, too. He compares Jane to an elf and, like, asks her, oh, was she sitting on the stile waiting for the other fairies or something like that? She just kind of runs with it, like, yeah, sure, uh (laughs) uh-huh. No, there are no fairies, Mr. Rochester. (laughs) I couldn't be waiting for them because they don't exist. (laughs) And he really likes that she's not really intimidated by him at all. She's really quiet around him, but whenever he pokes her enough, she'll poke back. She's feisty. He likes that. (laughs) There's one point where he catches her watching him and he asks if she thinks he's handsome and she's like no and then he starts teasing her about that and she tries to take it back she's all oh no no i shouldn't have said that i should have told you this in this other way and he's like no no you shouldn't you can't take it back now this is very interesting that you're so blunt with me i like it (laughs) after that first night chatting with mr rochester she gets a little bit of his backstory from mrs fairfax who tells her that Rochester is the second son in his family and was not supposed to inherit the house. And his father was a man with avarice and did not want his son to be poor. But he also didn't want to split up his his holdings to two children. And so he devised a scheme where Rochester could make his own fortune in a different way. But she's not sure what that is, except <laughs> that it really sucked for Rochester. But then... Rochester came into possession of Thornfield after his older brother died about nine years ago. And Jane just kind of takes all this info in. She's like, oh, that's very interesting. Very fascinating. Thank you. <laughs> See, that's the thing. And But the thing is, too, is that Jane is at this point a little frustrated with Fairfax because she wants more info. Like, she wants Fairfax to give her spin on things. Well, what do you think about these things? But Mrs. Fairfax doesn't seem to have independent thoughts (laughs) and it's very frustrating for jane she wants an opinion in addition to facts and she doesn't get any from fairfax (laughs) only the facts from fairfax 
So more time passes. They spend time together because he keeps calling her in for evening tea. There's one point when she's watching Adele outside and he invites her to take a walk up and down the path within sight of Adele so he can talk with her. And I think that's just another funny thing, like with the walking. <laughs> yes, just take a walk with me up and down. <laughs> Let's go pacing together. It's just very funny to me. And I know it, I know it's a thing and it's very normal for the for the time and, and the place and whatnot. But it's just kind of funny to me. Yeah, we don't so much do that now. <laughs> no, now it's like, oh, let me tell you a thing. Come over here. Let's sit and I shall gossip into your ear. Yeah, I mean, or if there's walking, there's shopping. You know, there's also other activities. It's not just walking outdoors, usually. So Rochester info dumps on Jane, tells her that Adele is the daughter of Celine Varens, who is a French dancer and singer and also was his mistress. Varens told him that Adele was his child, but he doesn't really see any resemblance. And so he doesn't claim her as his <laughs> because that's how it worked back then, y'all. And then Varens cheated on him and he discovered it. He was he was heartbroken, I think. I don't know. Like, I think he... Well, I don't know if heartbroken is the right word. I don't know that he was truly in love with her, but he was definitely entranced with I her. I think he was embarrassed. Yeah, when he discovered that she cheated on him, he... He was jealous and embarrassed and withdrew all his financial support from her and just put her out. But then when Varen's abandoned Adele, he took Adele in as his ward. Because he's like, yeah, you know, it's not her fault that her mom's And I may or may not be her dad, but I'm never going to admit to it. And you should believe me because I tell you that I'm not her father. And Jane says, (laughs) okay. Well, they don't really look alike, so must be true. Well... Yeah, I don't know. I get I get kind of a different impression of it. He said that they don't look alike and therefore he doesn't think he actually is her dad and didn't claim her as his child legally, but he's still taking care of her. You know, he's not a deadbeat. And I think Jane didn't necessarily go, okay, yeah, no, she's not your kid. I think she was just like, oh, okay, I see how things are and just kind of digested it because there's a point later in the story where she wishes that Adele looked more like Rochester because then he'd be more accepting of her. Yeah, maybe. Because I think she realizes that Rochester holds Adele at arm's length because I think he's just afraid of being hurt due to all his shit. And yeah, it's kind of fucked up to hold like a seven-year-old at arm's length, but I think that's where it is. I don't think he's doing it to, to not be hurt. Like, I think he would take... I think if he thought he were her dad, he would take legal guardianship of her as her dad. Maybe. I believe him that he doesn't think he is her dad. He does see to his responsibilities. See, I was kind to Rochester. I said something nice. I don't think he's withholding paternity to be malicious. I think he's withholding paternity because he doesn't believe it. No, I see your point. But, you know, the reader can decide what the reader wants. That is true. Because we don't really ever find out. DNA testing did not exist in Victorian era England. This is true. So that night, Jane has a lot of info to chew on. She's very entranced with this whole thing. Like, I think hearing this story from Rochester has humanized him for her. And that makes her like him better. And I think that she likes that he's flawed. Yeah. Because she sees herself as flawed. Yeah. She sees herself as unlovable. She has this flawed character that's no fault of hers that she deserves punishment for. And she sees this other person who is also flawed. And I think she feels a kinship with him. It is kind of interesting. She is very sheltered. Oh, yeah, you took a mistress? Uh Uh-huh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, whereas other women who maybe 
had a more social education <laughs> at the time would be like, oh, he's a rake. He's a cad. He's a no good man. We should stay away from him. Jane is just like, oh, that's very interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of one of the things with her personality. She doesn't really emote at this point in the story very much at all. She's very much channeling her inner Helen as yeah. much as she can. She takes in all this info and she's just like, oh, yes, that's very nice. That's of the now. I'm not concerned with the now. So that night she can't sleep because she's thinking about this story. And while she's laying in bed, she hears this creepy ass laughter and she's a little freaked out by it. And she's just like, it really sounds like it's somebody right by my bed. And so she gets up and she leaves her room to go investigate and discovers that there's a fire in the house and she follows the smoke and it's in Rochester's room and his bed is on <laughs> fucking fire and he is asleep in the middle of this fire just dead asleep and she's just like trying to wake him and he's just like <sighs> and so she grabs the ewer that he uses for washing and there's still water in it she pours that on the fire she goes and gets hers and pours that on the fire she manages to put the fire out but the water wakes him up <laughs> he's yet, like am i drowning what's going on <laughs> where am i <laughs> so she tells him no i came in here i heard this laughter and i came to see what it was and your bed was on fire and oh my goodness and he's like uh-oh because he hears the keywords creepy laughter Better go check that out. And he says, stay here and don't move and don't get anyone and I will be back. I have to go upstairs and check on something. <laughs> and she does. She just waits there. He goes upstairs. And when he returns, he's just very passionate with her. Like he holds her and, oh, you saved my life. Oh, you angel. Oh, you whatever. And I'm so glad you're safe and doodaloo. And it's very forward of him. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, he doesn't care about social rules the way others Especially might. for the time. No, but okay, we didn't discuss his age, but this man's like 38, all right? She's 18. He's got this 18-year-old girl who's his fucking employee in her night clothes in his bedroom, and he's holding her and, oh, yes, oh, you're so wonderful, and, you know, has this fire in his eyes, and it just kind of entrances her. And then he swears her to secrecy and says he's going to handle everything. Don't let anyone know what happened. <laughs> and she doesn't tell anybody anything. And he tells all the other servants, oh, yeah, I fell asleep while reading. And that was a candle that I left burning too close to the bed. Oops, I'm so dumb. Yeah, his level of control <laughs> is extreme. I don't know how realistic it is, but it's extreme. Especially since, like, everybody else but Jane kind of knows. They may not know these specifics, but they kind of know about his situation. Yeah, they know a little bit. And Jane realizes this. She overhears a couple servants talking about Grace Poole. And she's been kind of thinking to herself, like, why the fuck is Grace Poole still being employed here after she set Rochester to fire in his bed last night? WTF, man. And the servants are talking about Poole... But when they see Jane, they're like, oh, no, no, we weren't talking about that. Uh-uh. And so Jane knows, oh, there's something I don't know that others do. And she decides she's going to go talk to Rochester about it and see what's going on. But then she learns that he's left that morning. 
to go to a party and he's not going to be back for a while. She's just like, what? And Fairfax starts telling her, oh yeah, the party is so wonderful. And oh yes, there's this young lady that is going to be in attendance that seems to be fond of him and he of her. And she's just so beautiful and blah, blah, blah. Mm. Oh, Miss Ingram. It's funny though that Oh, Miss Ingram at the age of 25 or whatever is much better matched to Rochester than Jane, who's 18, which I mean, 25 and 18 is a huge age difference. But not in the grand scheme of things, much. it's not that much no. difference from 40. They're kind of yeah. equal from 40. But I guess Ingram is a bit more worldly. She's a lady brought up in society and whatnot. Yeah, she's a mildly more worldly 25 versus jane's exceedingly sheltered 18 and jane who i think is just secretly masochistic just starts getting all this information from fairfax about miss ingram oh tell me exactly what she looks like and how she is and all these things because she's jealous af but she'd never admit to it i don't think but she is well no she kind of does she kind of does because after she talks to fairfax she goes back to her room And she's like, you are stupid. And she starts like going in on herself. How could you possibly think that he would have any sort of feeling for you when obviously you don't measure up to people like Miss Ingram? There's no possible way that he could ever see you as anything but a little (laughs) servant that he's kind to. And then she draws two portraits. She draws a painfully accurate portrait of how she sees herself. And then she draws a beautiful portrait of Miss Ingram based on her description (laughs) from Miss Fairfax. And she says to herself, every time you start thinking about Mr. Rochester and thinking, oh, yeah, he's pretty hot stuff. I like him. You're going to pull out these two pictures and look at them. You will torture yourself. And go, yeah. If there's no one here to do do it for you, you will do it yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So... Rochester is gone for a while, but when he returns, as he's on his way back, he sends word that he's bringing guests with him. Dun, dun, dun. And the house is all aflutter and working on getting all the rooms ready for guests and whatnot. Adele is super excited because she wants to see all the ladies. She's very into fashion and being a girl and femininity and... That sort of society, I think, uh, when she lived with her mother, she kind of, she was introduced to that sort of thing. And I kind of suspect that she uses like that as a connection to her mom, because she no longer sees her mom. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Adele is told, oh, yes, you will get to see the ladies. And Jane is told, yes, you need to bring Adele in to meet the ladies. (laughs) (laughs) And Fairfax gives... Jane, some advice. Oh, yes, come in before anyone else comes in. And then you don't have to do any weird introduction ritual. And then you can just go sit in a corner and pretend you're not there. The second after Rochester sees you and sees that you were there, you can leave. (laughs) And this is how you handle this uncomfortable social situation. And Jane follows that advice. You know, she comes in early and then the ladies come in and Adele is very excited. And some of the ladies are really nice to Adele, but some of them, like Miss Ingram, are just annoyed by Adele and treat her like a little, like a little doll, like a little puppet for their amusement. And they basically all ignore Jane. I guess a couple of the ladies are nice to her, but they kind of just let her sit there 
Which honestly is what Jane would prefer. I think Jane is cool with it. Actually, what she'd really prefer is to not be there. But yeah, being forgotten about, she's like, no, that's cool, because then I don't have to interact with anybody. (laughs) I am totally fine with the state of affairs. And then the men come in, and the ladies are just like, oh, men. (laughs) It's a party. It's exciting. My heart is all a flutter. But Jane finally sees Rochester again after he left. After that night, he was set on fire. Literally and emotionally aflame and she has been trying to tell herself up until this point no 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 bad 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 you don't love him you don't like him you're not interested by him at all he is bad for you he is just a good boss and that is it but then she sees him and she's like oh shit nope still like him damn it (laughs) (laughs) yeah i even wrote in the notes that she realizes she still loves him against her will that's basically it yeah i'm fighting fighting it so much no i shall not love you oh never mind damn it (laughs) rochester at this point in the story he's very confusing he's confusing to jane but he's also confusing i think to the reader at least to me he is seemingly unaware of jane's social standing like after this this first event of the party because this party is days long He asks her, why didn't you come speak to me? Jane's like, uh... Do you think it's deliberately obtuse or do you think he just doesn't care about that? That's what I'm confused about. Yeah. (laughs) Because throughout the story, he fucks with her, right? We can all admit that. totally. He messes with her. He teases her. If one's being kind, it's teasing. If one's being unkind, it's definitely fucking with her mind. But either way, he's not a stupid man. Not at all. Doesn't seem to be. he's fully aware of how to act in society because he's very able to be gallant and charming. They even say, like, that that one night that Rochester isn't able to be there, like, the party isn't the same because he's not there. Like, he's the life of the party. Yeah. He's able, he's able to walk the walk. I know he doesn't care about walking the walk. I know it's yeah. all an act to him. But it just makes me wonder, does he care about her feelings? Because, yeah, maybe he doesn't care about walking the walk. Does he assume she doesn't either? No, I don't think he gives two shits about her feelings. Because if he cared about her feelings, he would be worried about societal repercussions because of his shenanigans. Yeah, that's the thing. That's why it's so confusing. Because it's not confusing. He doesn't later care. You f- He's lusty and he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> it makes perfect well, sense otherwise. It makes sense to you. It's very black and white, huh? A little bit, Yeah. I don't know. I think, and, and and you know, it's it's kind of funny. I feel like we're, we've kind of traded places here because oftentimes I'm very black and white when we talk about books. Yeah. But I'm seeing, I'm seeing some gray. I am. Yay! I don't think he's especially likable. I don't think he treats her the way he should or anything like that, especially at this point in the story. But part of me thinks like he's inviting her to throw off the shackles of society with him. But you're right, he doesn't necessarily care or know, but probably care about any repercussions that might have on her. Where he is in society, if he acts in a deviant way, it's completely different than if she does. Oh, absolutely. And he doesn't have any concept of that, which is not unrealistic. Yeah. And when you learn his backstory, like the full extent of his backstory... He has his own chains from society, too, that he's trying to throw off. He's manic about it. He's just trying to pretend that 
he can live in this fantasy land that he wants to live he in. He felt shortchanged by life because he was entitled to something, didn't get what he was supposed to get, and he's grumpy. I don't think you're being fair. And here, here's this ready-made salvation in the form of his little nun. <laughs> I don't think you're being fair. I don't, because... He's fictitious. I don't have to be fair. You don't have to... <laughs> No, you don't have to like him. It's just, I, I don't really like him. But the thing is, is he, I think it's more complicated than that. Uh, you're probably right. But we kind of have to reveal his full backstory before we get to that. So I'm sure we'll discuss Rochester later. <laughs> or continue to discuss him as we continue. Hey, dude, my claws are staying in. I'm doing good. You're doing great. <laughs> good job, Em. High five. Woohoo. Credit where credit's due. Uh, a plus for effort. <laughs> like I said, this party happens over the course of of days and nights. Rochester tells Jane that he expects her to be there every evening. He wants her to participate, but he's not going to force her to participate, but he definitely wants her to be there and witness it. Yes, witness, witness my shenanigans. Yeah, because he shamelessly flirts with Miss Ingram. Yes. Just shameless. I, I can't make you jealous if you're not there. It just makes it harder. Yeah, because this is his plan and and you don't learn this till the end of the book when he reveals it to Jane, because of course Jane doesn't pick up on it. She has to be told point blank, this is what I was doing. But that night that she saved his life, he realized the depth of feeling that he had for her and he needed to make her love him just the same way. And how best to make her love him than to make her jealous. Uh. And how best to make her jealous than bring another beautiful young lady around and pretend you're into that person. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, how old is he? Oh yeah, 40. Almost 40. Not a teen. And he doesn't give two <laughs> shits. He doesn't give two shits about Miss Ingram either because he's ascertained that the only reason she's being nice to him is because he has money. Yeah, well, probably not wrong. She can't go earn a living on her own, really. I mean, she doesn't want to be a governess. We already know how she feels about those. <laughs> Might be a little different if she had to don that outfit herself. (laughs) No, he even tests her because he pretends like, oh, yeah, my fortune may not be as big as you think it is. And she cools off toward him after that. (laughs) So he knows. He knows that's what she wanted. On the night that Rochester had to be away on business, the party's still going on, although it's a bit more subdued because Rochester's not there. Jane is still there because she's doing what her boss told her to do. You will be at this party. She's seen enough of Rochester with Ingram that she's starting to compare herself to Miss Ingram. And she's starting to think to herself, you know, yeah, she's pretty and all, but she doesn't really have much of a good personality. And it doesn't really suit his personality whatsoever. And my personality suits his personality much better. (laughs) Not that I could ever aspire to be with him. Of course not. But we do get along really well. It's kind of typical 18-year-old girl shit, I feel like. Oh, he's with this other girl. Let's think about all the ways she isn't suited for him and all the ways I am. Maybe it's 18-year-old person. Let's not be gendered, I suppose. Typical 18-year-old stuff. A stranger arrives. We find out his name is Mr. Mason. He claims to be an old friend of Rochester's. They let him in and let him hang out at the party and he just kind of hangs out by himself. And it's a little weird, but they go with it. And then an old fortune teller arrives and 
wants to be let in and the servants are like, yeah, no, young people, you should not let this fortune teller in. She looks a little shady. And they're like, oh, no, this will be great fun. Let the, let her in. And the servant's like, um, yeah, no, you probably shouldn't, but okay, I guess I have to. So she gets set up in the library. They all want to go down in a group. And the servant's like, no, she insists that she's only going to see young ladies who aren't married and only one at a time. <laughs> Which doesn't sound shady at all. No, that feels okay. perfectly legit. Let's do it. Yeah, that's what they yeah. say. So, Yeah. Miss Ingram is the first one to go. She gets her fortune told. She comes back and she seems a little upset. And she won't share why. She just seems pissed. Some of the other ladies go. It's very exciting. And then the servant comes up to Jane and says, She says that there's one other unmarried young lady here. And I think you're the only one left. And I think you're who she means. And I'm sorry. This isn't shady at all. How does this fortune teller know this? Oh, gosh. Jane, of course, is much interested. She's like, yes, I want to get my fortune read. This is very fascinating. So she goes into the library and has this very weird back and forth with the fortune teller. And eventually it's revealed that it's Mr. Rochester in disguise. <gasps> Did I sound shocked and amazed? <laughs> <laughs> I'm honestly... I was surprised that he was able to pass himself off as a woman because he is described as having very masculine features. And it's just very <laughs> shocking to me that anyone could possibly think that he's Some a woman. Some women have masculine features. And let's face it, Ingram and the other, it's not like they're going to, they're not going to look that deep. Not critical thinkers there. No, I guess not. And to be fair, he did take great pains to hide his features from Jane as much as he could when she yeah, was in there. Yeah, a lot there. of people, when they watch the movie, they always try to look to see, like, if you can actually see the actor. You know, like, how well you can determine. <laughs> I thought it was kind of silly. <laughs> Whatever. So after Rochester reveals that it is he, Jane is like, oh, yeah, there's a Mr. Mason here. Came to see you. And Rochester's just kind of free freaking out a little bit. He's like, oh. Huh, very interesting. Oh my. He asks Jane to go get him. Jane agrees, and she's just kind of awkwardly, you know, walking across the party, talking to Mr. Mason while everyone's looking at her like WTF. <laughs> <laughs> Escorts him to the library, and then she goes to bed. Later in the evening, she overhears Rochester telling Mason, Oh, yes, here's your room. You can stay here for the night. And it seems fine. Everything seems fine. She goes to sleep and is awoken in the middle of the night. By a loud shrieking noise from the third Santa? story. And it wakes everybody up and they're all freaking out. I think they're all a little titillated from the fortune teller escapade from earlier too. So it's all very fantastical for them. And they hear like this, help, help, Mr. Rochester, where's Rochester? And then Rochester shows up and he tells everyone, oh no, it's fine. One of the servants just had a nightmare or something. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool. Cool, cool, cool. Go to bed. And they do. They all go to bed. And then he comes to Jane's room and says, are you up? Are you awake? Are you dressed? And Jane's like, yeah, of course I am. Why wouldn't I be? It's not like it's the middle of the fucking night. Nope. <laughs> He's like, do you have like a sponge and some other stuff that I need? You could bring that with you and come with me. And she's like, um, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> so she goes upstairs with him and Mr. Mason is lying there bleeding copiously <laughs> in the middle of the room it's fine 
There's another right, door. Fine. Just a flesh wound. But it's wound. closed. <laughs> Rochester's just like, yep, just keep mopping up the blood. I'll be back in a little bit with the doctor. <laughs> and don't talk to each other for the next three hours or however. Don't you dare say anything to each other. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was something else, right? Like, yeah, just sit there together. Seriously, the lengths he goes to to make sure that Jane does not figure out his <laughs> secret. How far exactly can he bend over backwards? Oh, it was so funny. <laughs> okay, so she's mopping up his blood. He's got a stab wound. He also has a bite wound. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> sometimes you get hungry. And then... <laughs> rochester and mason are having like this very cryptic conversation like why did you come up here at night by yourself that was very dumb of you he's like well i wanted to go check on her and rochester's like you could have waited till tomorrow why did you come here by yourself dumbass and he's like i don't know you're right i am a dumbass <laughs> <laughs> the extent of my dumbassery is extreme. <laughs> so then, uh, oh yeah, Mr. Mason says something really cryptic too, like, oh, make sure you take care of her as tenderly as you can. <laughs> Get right on that. Who is this her? No one you need worry about ever. And Jane is just a little worried. She's she's wondering, like, why is Grace Poole still here? Like, if she's doing this like if she's stabbing and taking bites out of people <laughs> why is she still here i don't get it <laughs> and she talks to rochester about it he's like oh no don't worry about her it's fine <laughs> and then later there's there's this rumor that begins that he's gonna get married to miss ingram it's just really bizarre and they start talking about it they're, they're walking together and they're talking and it seems like he's talking to jane about like how he feels about jane but then he's all Yes, I think if I married Miss Ingram, it would be wonderful. Don't you think so, Jane? He sees that Jane looks really upset, and he, like, seems happy about that. <laughs> yeah. He's like, Jane, will you watch with me again? And she's like, oh, whenever I can be useful, sir. And he says, for instance, the night before I'm to be married, I'm sure I will not be able to sleep. Will you promise to sit up with me and bear me company? To you, I can talk of my lovely one. For now, you have seen her and know her. Yeah. Oh, she's so hot. <laughs> so yucky. <laughs> I highlighted that part and I wrote, he's fucking oh, with her. Oh, yeah. That is the story of Jane Eyre. <laughs> he's fucks with her so then he can fuck her. Yep. <laughs> yeah all right so some more time passes this dude called levin shows up and he was mrs reed's coachman when jane lived at gateshead with the reeds and he's like hey yeah you probably don't know me anymore but this is who i am do you remember me and she's like oh yes of course i remember you and he says yeah 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 i'm married to bessie remember and she's like yeah that's great and he says yeah that's that's wonderful but you know what John, your cousin died. Wait, wait, I'm working up a tear. And your aunt had like some weird seizure or something and she's not doing well. Apparently she's calling for you and I've come to see if you'll come see her. <laughs> Clearly you don't realize the relationship we have. <laughs> Jane is like, yes, Robert, I shall be ready. It seems to me that I ought to go. Duty and all. And I'm like, bitch, do you remember what you said to Mrs. Reed before you left to go to school? I mean, it has been a while. 
<laughs> yeah, it has, but still. Like, she disowned her. I can understand if someone's on their deathbed and you're going, okay. Perhaps a reconsideration is needed. I think the level that Mrs. Reed treated Jane. <laughs> oh, I don't think she owes her abuser anything. <laughs> but I can understand, like, <laughs> I think there are multiple ways to close off chapters of one's life. But maybe that's what she... Although she's all about duty and servitude. So, I mean... That's where I got caught up. Because I could get it if she's like, yes, I need closure. I'm going to go. But that's not what she's thinking. She's thinking, oh, yes, of course, I'll come to my aunt. Maybe we can have an amicable sort of relationship before she dies. And if not, and she stabs me at the heart, you know, it's fine. I will just endure. She doesn't go with the thought of getting closure for herself. She goes with the thought of, oh, she needs me. Who cares about me? It's so awkward because, I mean, that's basically the only mother that, that Jane knew was this woman who gave zero fucks. She had Temple eventually. But even then, I think maybe that's why it hurt her so much that Temple left is because that was, that was the surrogate mother. I, I think a large part of her decision lies with Helen's influence. She's fully embraced like this whole ideal of asceticism. Yeah. Yes, I must live this life of servitude and give of myself. Devote myself to others. It is God's will. She goes and asks Mr. Rochester for leave to go. And Mr. Rochester is, of course, like, yeah, sure. But can you not be gone very long? Because I don't want you to be gone very long. She's all, well, I might be gone a little while because she's dying. <laughs> On account of her dying. And he's like, well, don't be gone that long. Do you need money? Here, let me give you some money. He gives her a whole shit ton of money. And then, and then he's all, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, no. Let me give you less money than I owe you. That way you'll have to come back and get the rest of it. He's ensuring she'll come back. You understand how insecure and <laughs> like, abusive you sound? No? Okay. It's so gross. And then they have this conversation, too, before she leaves. He, I think he's just worried she won't come back because, you know, he's supposedly getting married to Miss Ingram. And Jane's been kind of concerned about her situation after after he has a wife. <laughs> It's at this point she says, can you please promise me that you'll put Adele in school once you bring Miss Ingram home so she doesn't have to be here with Miss Ingram? Because I think she's worried about how Miss Ingram yeah. would treat Adele based on how Miss Ingram has treated Adele, which makes sense. Also based on Jane's past, <laughs> the usurper child. Yes, don't let Adele be the usurper no. child, please. And then she's also like, yeah, and I certainly don't need to be here either i'll probably be advertising or something to go find another job and he is like no let me do that for you let me find a situation for you okay he promises to make sure that both jane and adele are safely out of the house in better situation before he brings his bride home and she promises to return and also not to advertise for a new position because he's going to find her one. That whole thing is ew. Initially, before it went too far, I thought the money thing was cute. Oh, do you have money here? Let me give you money. Let me give you like a massive amount of money. Like that part was cute. And then it was like, oh, wait, no, no, actually, no, you can't have all that money because I want you to come back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, that made it less cute. I think sometimes it doesn't work. Because of, it gets ew. Or sometimes it doesn't work because time period, you know? It's like if, if this were a modern story, yeah. 
I mean, you certainly couldn't tell it this way, I don't think, with the same sort of constraints. Well, as we progress, it becomes gravely evident that the the social structures that we have in place to protect people just do not exist in this time period. Our attitudes towards hedonism, so different. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Essentially, it's pain brings you closer to God. The harder your life is, the higher your seat in heaven will be. Yeah, that's... That's the the thing. I, I don't agree with it, but... So, Jane travels 100 miles back to Gateshead to go see Mrs. Reed, who still hates her. Mrs. Reed is in her deathbed. Her two daughters are there, and they're very opposite. So, one of the daughters, Georgiana, is very much frothy, socialite-type girl. And the other daughter, Eliza, is kind of in the fashion of, of Helen, only to an extreme sense. I'm on this path of asceticism, I'm being pious, I'm going to care about God and nothing else. Meanwhile, Georgiana's kind of like, oh, I need to find a man and get married and be in society. It's going to be so wonderful. Jane has a conversation with Mrs. Reed. Mrs. Reed just still (laughs) hates her. I mean, essentially, there's a lot between like Jane and the two cousins. And I think it's there to show like, two sides of the coin you know you have the frothy hedonistic girl and then you have the ascetic pious girl jane is kind of she's not frothy but she's passionate and she tries to kill that within herself because she's been taught from a very young age that that is her fault yeah that is her flaw that is why she deserves punishment and hatred and abuse so she's trying to kill that little piece of herself and embrace the other and I think even at this point, it's still struggle for her. So even though she's 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 able to keep it in control to a point, but she still like she still has passion. She still is in love with Rochester, even though she knows it's a terrible idea and she's told herself it is. She can't make yeah. herself not be in love with him. She still has feelings, no matter how much she tries to not have feelings. She cannot control her feelings, her passions. No, she controls her actions very well. But yeah, she still has the feelings and everything. So finally, Mrs. Reed is ready to die. Jane is in there and has a private interview with Mrs. Reed. Mrs. Reed unburdens how she did Jane wrong. And she says one of the ways she did Jane wrong was by breaking the promise she gave to her husband to bring Jane up as her own child. And then she stops herself. She's like, oh, maybe I don't need to tell you the other one. And then she thinks, no, no, I better tell you because if I die, I better get this out and burden myself before God. So she gets Jane to get a letter out of the drawer. And this letter is from Jane's <gasps> uncle. Dun, dun, dun. Who wants to meet Jane and adopt her and take care of her and bequeath to her whatever he may have to leave when what? he dies. Which would have been very advantageous for Jane because she had nobody. She is a woman alone. And you learn in the course of the story, she literally has nobody. Nobody gives two shits about her. (laughs) And here's a man who's like, yeah, you know, I want to give a shit about her. And (laughs) Mrs. Reed says, yeah, I told him you were dead. (laughs) And Jane says, why? (laughs) And Mrs. Reed brings up that day that Jane cursed her out before she went to school. And Mrs. Reed says, I felt fear as if an animal that I had struck or pushed had looked up at me with human eyes and cursed me in a man's voice. And I'm like, damn right you did. 
you stupid asshole. And then she says, I tell you, I could not forget it. And I took my revenge for you to be adopted by your uncle and placed in a state of ease and comfort was what I could not endure. I wrote to him. I said I was sorry for his disappointment, but Jane Eyre was dead. Uh. <laughs> and then Jane says, if you could be but persuaded to think no more of it, aunt, and to regard me with kindness and forgiveness. like She's like, no, it's fine. Let's rug sweep this. Let's just have a good relationship now. You know, let's move past this and, and be friends. <laughs> and her aunt says... You have a very bad disposition, and one to this day I feel it impossible to understand. How for nine years you could be patient and quiescent under any treatment, and in the tenth, break out all fire and violence. I can never comprehend. You see, it's this thing called breaking point. You abused me to the point of hitting that point. And then Jane even pleads with her almost, I think. She says, many a time as a little child, I should have been glad to love you if you would have let me. And I long earnestly to be reconciled to you now. Kiss me, aunt. And she leans down and her <laughs> aunt is just like, oh, hell no. Don't touch me. Get away from me. I can't stand to touch you. It's terrible. Yeah, and then Jane says, okay, well, fine. You can love me or hate me. I forgive you. Enjoy God. <laughs> Enjoy being dead. Whatever. Yeah, basically. It is fucked up. Like, that whole scene. Like, wow. Mrs. Reed. Yeah. To the bitter end. Woman holds a grudge. <laughs> She's terrible. Like, ever. She really is. Over a child. But she was a demon child. No, she was a child. <laughs> She was an angry child who'd been abandoned by life and then mistreated by the person who was supposed to care about her for her entire, almost her entire life. So, yeah. Yeah. She had some issues. And you, being the lady of the house, were kind of responsible for those. <laughs> she has no memories of a childhood where she had a loving kind person in her life yeah because bessie i mean i think bessie tried but jane just at the time could not accept or understand there's a level too like at what point did she just internalize yeah. oh this is what i deserve even while she denies that she deserves it and begs for a different treatment i think she still internalized no i deserve this and you can tell that she's lived her life that way. I mean, even that point when she first meets Mr. Rochester on the road and she's like, oh, well, he's rude and grumpy. I'm okay dealing with rude and grumpy people. And throughout the story, when she meets with rude and grumpy people, she's fine. It's when she's dealt any kindness that she doesn't know what to do. Yeah. It's sad. It is. Okay. So a month passes. Mrs. Reed died. There's a funeral and then Jane is helping Georgiana with stuff and then she's helping Eliza with stuff and then she heads back to Thornfield. She does give us a little bit of closure about Georgiana and Eliza. We learn that Georgiana ended up making an advantageous match with a wealthy man and Eliza ended up taking the veil. Yeah, they got so, what they wanted. Good for them. They both succeeded at what they wanted to do. She's heading back home, but she's starting to think, well, it's actually not really home, is it? Rochester's getting married to Miss Ingram, and I'm going to have to find somewhere else to be. I just don't know what to do. Like, it's depressing. Yeah. She's walking down to Thornfield, 
And guess who she sees on that very same stile where she had rested so long ago? Santa. It's Mr. Rochester. (laughs) Raunchy. (laughs) And he sees her and he just starts questioning her. And I really, I kind of liked this little, this little bit here. He says, what the deuce have you done with yourself this last month? And she says, I've been with my aunt, sir, who is dead. And he says, a true Janian reply. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which he's not wrong. She tells him that he's her home. He's like, oh, you poor pathetic girl. Oh, poor Jane. Oh, <laughs> and then she just basically runs away. <laughs> She's all, yes, you're my home. Bye. Can't deal. Too many feels. <laughs> While she's back at Thornfield, she starts to realize, you know, Rochester hasn't really been visiting Miss Ingram and Miss Ingram's not really here. And I don't really know what's going on with this whole wedding. And well, maybe it's not going to be a wedding. Maybe it's fine. Maybe the rumor was wrong. Maybe he's not getting married. Maybe they changed their minds. Maybe he actually cares about me. And he does seem to because he keeps calling her in and doing his evening teas. More time passes. She's walking, I think, in the garden or something. And then she sees him. And she's like, oh, shit. No, I got to avoid, 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 avoid. But he sees her. Because, of course, he sees her. And relentlessly, he's like, no, Jane, come here. Talk to me. It's a lovely night. You must walk (laughs) with me. And she's like, oh, I do not know how to make an excuse to leave. I am stuck here. And then he's just so mean. He says, (laughs) he says. Thornfield is a pleasant place in summer, is it not? Yes, sir. You must have become in some degree attached to the house. And she's like, I am attached to it, yes. He says, and though I don't comprehend how it is, I perceive you have acquired a degree of regard for that foolish little child Adele, too. And even for simple Dame Fairfax. She's like, yep, I sure do. Yep, I like them. And he says, and would be sorry to part with them? Yes. Pity, he says. (laughs) It is always the way of events in this life. No sooner have you got settled in a pleasant resting place than a voice calls out to you to rise and move on for the hour of repose has expired. And then then she says, must I move on? And he says, yep, yeah, you must. And she's like, okay, well, I guess I will. And he says, yep, and (laughs) you need to fuck off tonight. Bye-bye. And then she says, okay, so you are getting married? And he says, yep, I sure am. And she says, soon? Oh, yes, absolutely. I sure am. It's going to be great. Miss Ingram's awesome. She's a hottie, all right. And as you said, if I marry Miss Ingram, both you and little Adele better fuck off. (sighs) It's so messed up. Oh, God, And he tells her, oh, yeah, you know, I found a place for you. It's off in Ireland. You'll love it. It's great. Oh, and I'm never going to go to Ireland. Yeah, I hate Ireland, so you'll never see me again. And I think, isn't that what breaks her? She's like, Yeah, she says the distance and then the sea is a barrier. And he says, from what? From you, sir. She even says that it's involuntary. You know, it just kind of comes out against her will. He just keeps rubbing her nose in it. Yeah, because he loves her so much. He's like, yep. And when you get there, I'll never see you again. That's morally certain. (laughs) And then he says, we've been good friends, Jane, have we not? (laughs) And she goes, yes, sir. And he says, and when friends are on the eve of separation, they like to spend the little time that remains to them close to each other. Come, we'll talk over the voyage and the parting quietly half an hour or so. WTF, Rochester. 
Good old Ranchy. They're sitting there all cozy-like. And then he starts telling her how he feels queer around her and that he feels like he has a string tied to his rib connected to a string tied to one of her ribs. And if she goes to Ireland, that will probably (laughs) snap the string and he's worried she'll forget him. And she says, oh, I never will forget you. And then she starts crying. She's grieving. She's sad. It's terrible. And then... The mind fuck. Yeah, because she hasn't been mind fucked enough throughout either the course of the story, her life, or just these last few minutes of his fuckery. She's explaining to him why she's so fucking sad. I see the necessity of departure and it is like looking on the necessity of death. And he says, where do you see the necessity? (laughs) She says, you put it there, dude. And he says, in what shape? And she says, uh, you're getting married, Miss Ingram, remember your bride? And he says, my bride? What bride? I have no bride. And she's like, but you will have. And he says, oh, I will. I will. And then she says, then I must go. You've said it yourself. And then he says, you must stay. I swear it. And she says, do you think I can stay to become nothing to you? Do you think I'm an automaton? Do you think I'm an automaton? I'm an automaton? Dude, I can't talk. A machine without feelings? Yeah, I think he does. I think because she's so good at controlling herself, he feels like he has to poke, poke, poke to get a response. I think so. And she's finally broken. And she says, if God had gifted me with some beauty and much wealth, I should have made it as hard for you to leave me as it is now for me to leave you. I am not talking to you now through the medium of custom conventionalities, nor even of mortal flesh. It is my spirit that addresses your spirit just as if both had passed through the grave and we stood at God's feet equal as we are. And then he agrees with her and he kisses her. And she's like, yeah, no, you can't be kissing me. You're just as good as married. (laughs) And she struggles away from him and finally gets free of him. And I really liked her words here. I am no bird and no net ensnares me. I am a free human being with an independent will, which I now exert to leave you. And he replies, and your will shall decide your destiny. I offer you my hand, my heart, and a share of all my possessions. (laughs) And she's like, no, you're fucking with me. You're totally fucking with me right now. I do not believe you. Finally, she learns. And he's all, no, 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 no. No, I'm serious this time. See, you can't keep calling Wolf Peter and then say, oh, no, wait. I'm single. (laughs) I'm unattached. Ugh, it's so infuriating. He's so scared of putting himself out there without knowing for sure how she feels. And he's created this whole fucked up scheme to make her jealous, make her tell him how she feels about him so that he can then realize, okay, I can propose to her and she will accept. He thinks he's the puppet master, M. Ah, uh, cut his fucking strings. <laughs> I think that's the thing. I think he's he's playing her like a fiddle. And she's letting him. I don't, I don't know if it's fear or it probably is fear. It's just he's he's trying. Yeah, he it's he's, cowardice. He is. He's a manipulative coward. He can't bear to put himself forward and admit how he feels without being assured that she feels the same. But he can't really be assured either because he's manipulating everything. That doesn't give him any more certainty, I don't think. I don't know how I feel about that, but the thing that really hard for me is that, again, this is in defiance of the power imbalance. Like, does he not perceive this? That for her to put herself forward first leaves her vulnerable to the world? Whereas if he put himself first... It's just him that could get hurt. 
I don't think he thinks about the empower imbalance because I don't think he cares about her in a respectful way. Like, he doesn't respect her at all. And he has zero capacity, I guess, to see the world at all from her point of view and what that would mean for her to act first. Yeah, I think he definitely lacks empathy. Yeah. And a certain degree, critical thinking. He doesn't, for whatever reason, either does not know or does not care about what she might have to lose. No, he doesn't. It's all about what he wants. This is a trope that persists in romance books. (laughs) We've discussed this multiple times. It's very funny that even a book published in the 1840s or whatever has this trope. Ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Dude. It is incredibly frustrating, though, the lack of empathy that Rochester has for Jane and and her position in life and her struggle. And no, you have to bare your soul to me before I even think of giving you a glimpse it's of how I'm It's frustrating, but I think it's completely accurate. He's not expected so to. So he keeps proposing to her and finally somehow, somehow gets her to believe him. He just wears her down. She asks to look at his face she says i want to look into your eyes and she's like staring at him and he's just very impassioned and he says you're torturing me not yet she's like if you're true and your offer real my only feelings to you must be gratitude and devotion they cannot torture and then he's like begging her accept him accept him use my given name edward accept me gratitude and devotion still not love she says are you in earnest do you truly love me do you sincerely wish me to be your wife and he says i do and if an oath is necessary to satisfy you i swear it and then she says then i'll marry you yeah fill the romance because i sure do what a proposal and then there's all the kissing and they go home. Mrs. Fairfax happens to see some kissing and she is like, oh, no, oh, sweetie, so late very to disapproving. Party. And Jane goes off to bed thinking, well, I'll have to have her figure <laughs> oh, that out. Oh, it's OK. Later. Rochester will take care of it. And then no one will ever mention anything ever again. Yeah. She's like, oh, no, he'll have to handle it. He's the master of the house. And then he calls her in the next morning. And she's just, she's very happy. I know. I think she's the happiest she's ever been. I know. It breaks my heart every time I read it. (laughs) And he's so good to her at this point (sighs) thus far. Now that the initial mindfuckery is over. (laughs) Keep in mind I said initial. Now that I've basically manipulated and mindfucked her into getting (laughs) her right where I wanted her. He's like, oh, I want to drown you in jewels and travel with you everywhere and it's going to be so wonderful and jane is like yeah no eventually you'll tire of me i think jane has a perception (laughs) of reality i think rochester is off in la la land and he's like no you must ask me for something if you won't accept jewels what will you have (laughs) oh she says she wants to know the truth about what happened with miss ingram And this is where he admits to her, yeah, I feigned courtship of Miss Ingram because I wished to render you as madly in love with me as I was with you. And I knew jealousy would be the best ally I could call in for the furtherance of that end. And Jane's like, okay, yeah, I get it. Poor Jane doesn't get courtship. He asks her if she was jealous and she's like, oh, it's not interesting to you to know that. (laughs) Which I like. See, that's the thing. She is. She is totally fooled by him and taken in by him and in love with him. 
But she's very plain spoken. She's like, yeah, no, I care about other people's feelings. Like, did you like hurt (laughs) Miss Ingram? What is going on with that? All right. So Mr. Rochester does set Miss Fairfax straight. No, no, I'm actually marrying her. It's fine. Then Miss Fairfax gives Jane some advice. And it's fucking good advice. I was so happy to read a romance book where the older woman gives the younger woman advice that isn't spread your legs and make him happy. Well, to be fair, given the time period, that is unlikely to be her advice. (laughs) She is like, I am worried that he is playing you for a fool. And if you sleep with him, you will be put in a bad way. And so you should guard yourself from him until you're actually married. Yep. Good advice. Poor Mrs. <laughs> Fairfax doesn't have all the facts either. Uh, yeah. No. She says, I hope it will be all right in the end. But believe me, you cannot be too careful. Distrust yourself as well as him. Gentlemen in his station are not accustomed mm-hmm. to marry their governesses. Yeah. Excellent advice. There are several points where they're alone and he tries to be all kissy kissy and glom onto her. And she's like, no, no, let me sit across from the room. She tells him, I'm not going to stop being a governess, and you can only see me in the evening like you were before until after we're married. I was proud of her, though. She was very much, these are my boundaries, and you will hold to them, and I am going to... Yeah, she asserts herself. It's good. And I think she feels at this point empowered to do so, because she feels like they're on an equal footing since they mutually Mm -hmm. love each other, supposedly. Sad. Yes. They start planning the wedding, and it's lovely. They've got all this stuff that he's bought for her because they're going to go on this wonderful honeymoon. During this time period, he's getting a little bit angsty because he wants to be all kissy kissy and she's putting him off. But at the same time, he's also kind of into it. He likes that she's still being her. There's this point that I highlighted here where she thinks to herself, My future husband was becoming to me my whole world and more than the world, almost my hope of heaven. He stood between me and every thought of religion as an eclipse intervenes between man and the broad sun. I could not in those days see God for his creature of whom I had made an idol. So she's like, yep, Rochester's my God now. Fuck off, Helen. I am embracing this. Yeah, I mean, the whole story is very, you know, earthly desires or heavenly ones, which is going to win out. The bridal day approaches. Jane starts feeling a little anxious. Rochester's been gone all day on business. There's a storm. One of the trees out front gets struck by lightning. Is this foreshadowing? Probably. God is displeased. AKA Bronte. She's so upset. Because he's not home yet. And she's waiting and waiting and waiting for him. And then she decides, you know, I should get up and look for him. And then she's like, well, since I'm up, I should just go outside and see if he's home yet. And then she's like, well, now that I'm outside, maybe I should just, you know, start walking that way. And we'll probably meet up with each other. (laughs) And they do. Like, he's on his way home. And he's like, what's wrong? And she's like, I thought you would never come. I couldn't wait for you. It's the rain. And hasn't she been having nightmares or something? Yeah, she tells him about the nightmare that she had that may or may (laughs) not have been a nightmare where a ghastly presence came into her room and woke her up and ripped her veil in half and then left. And she thought to herself, oh, no, it's just a dream. But her veil had actually been ripped in half. Anything to say to that raunchy? No? Okay. And she says, it was not Sophie. 
It was not Leah. It was not Mrs. Fairfax. It was not even Grace Poole. And he's like, it had to have been one of them. And she describes her. (laughs) It just sounds very ghastly. Yeah. Very scary. And then she says, now, sir, tell me who and what that woman was. And he says, the creature Mm. of an overstimulated brain. (laughs) Thanks for that. And she's like, yeah, I thought so, too, until I woke up and looked. And there was a freaking two pieces of my veil on the floor. What happened? Tell me. And he says, I'll explain it to you. It was half dream, half reality. A woman did, I doubt not, enter your room. And that woman was, must have been, Grace Poole. I see you would ask why I keep such a woman in my house. And when we've been married a year and a day, I will tell you, but not now. He tells her that she should go sleep in the nursery with Adele and Sophie. So she's not alone that night. (sighs) Gee, I wonder why. So now it's her wedding day. They're dressed. It's exciting. They get to the church. It's wonderful. And then you get to that fateful line, you know. (laughs) Does anyone have any reason these two should not be married? And somebody comes out from the back shadows and says, I declare the existence of an impediment. And Rochester is just, dude, he makes him say it out loud in front of everybody. Yeah, no, he's married. He has a wife who's still alive. What? And Rochester argues with him. He's like, and who are you? Well, I'm a lawyer. And Rochester's like, yeah, well, you have no proof. And he goes, well, I have a witness who saw her not three months ago alive. And Mr. Mason shows up and he's all, yep, I'm the wife's brother. I was there. I saw her alive. (sighs) Rochester admits that he is married. (laughs) And he's like, I think he's just insane at this point. Yeah, I think this is when he snaps because he's like, I'm so freaking close to getting what I want, which is the bride I deserve. And then, God damn it, my God, aka Bronte, says, nope, you are unworthy. And he's like, I invite you all to come round up to my house and visit Mrs. Poole's patient and my wife. Yeah, he loses crap at that point. And if I cared, this is where I would care. (laughs) He does exonerate Jane. He's like, she knew nothing about this. But come, meet my wife. (laughs) And as they exit the church, the servants are there. Mrs. Fairfax, Adele, everybody's there. They're ready to congratulate. And he says, away with your congratulations. Who wants them? Not I. They're 15 years too late. (laughs) And he leads them all upstairs up to the third floor. And he says, you know, this place, Mason, she bit and stabbed you here. (laughs) Ah, memories. (laughs) He opens the door. There's Grace Poole and her patient. And oh my, this poor woman. Yeah. She sees Mr. Rochester and she attacks him. And she's trying to kill him. And he's wrestling with her, like trying to pin her down, but he is not going to hit her or anything. He ends up tying her up to prevent her from committing harm. And then he turns to the spectators and it says, he looked at them with a smile, both acrid and desolate. That is my wife. Such is the sole conjugal embrace I am ever to know. Such are the endearments that are to solace my leisure hours. And this is what I wish to have. And he puts his hand on Jane's shoulder. (laughs) Go ahead and judge me. (laughs) Okay. He says I can. (laughs) 
The lawyer says to Jane, you're cleared of blame and your uncle will be glad to hear it if he's still alive. Because of course he's sick and dying. Yeah, everybody dies. Jane had sent a letter to her uncle about her pending nuptials. And when her uncle discovered that she was getting married, he looked into who Mr. Rochester was. And guess who her uncle is friends with? I want to say Santa, but I don't think it's funny anymore. So maybe I shouldn't say it. Mr. Mason. Oh. I think it's funny. I was disappointed. Mr. Mason was like, oh, no, no. Rochester's <laughs> married to my sister. And since Jane's uncle was too sick to travel himself, he begged Mr. Mason to go rescue her from a fate of bigamy, which was good. And then Jane goes to her room and just kind of takes off her wedding dress and puts back on her old clothes and just kind of <laughs> it's like, okay, then this sucks. So Jane decides, all right, I can't. I just can't. And she tells Mr. Rochester, I can't. This isn't a thing anymore. And he is in denial. He is in deep, deep denial because he's like, you know what? No, no, we can go travel somewhere else where no one knows who we are and and get married there and it'll be fine. And Jane is like, yeah, no, I can't do that. You have a wife. And even then he's still planning to keep her there. He just wants to box up another woman somewhere else. Yep, yep, yep. And he's like, well, if I tell you my story, if I tell you all of it, then then of course you'll agree with me. You'll understand. I'm tricked into marrying a woman of color. And oh, no, she likes to drink and gamble because time period and racism. She's not the dutiful little English wife that I'm supposed to have. Sorry, I'm not at all tolerant of Rochester. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That's some vitriol coming from him there. No, it's true, though. He did get tricked into marrying her. His father, if you might recall, wanted Rochester to have a fortune of some kind and decided he needed to marry for money. And his father knew that insanity ran in this woman's family, didn't tell Rochester, and was like, no, no, here, you can be introduced to her and see if she's a good match for you. And he travels to see her and is only able to talk with her a little bit and see her when they're surrounded by people and whatnot and he is subsumed with lust and thinks he's in love with her and ends up proposing and they get married like right away come to find out she's not very pleasant he doesn't like being around her and then she starts being violent it gets to the point where he starts thinking well maybe i can break off this marriage and and leave but then she is diagnosed with madness even then at the time he could have gotten a divorce and it would not have affected him. Granted, it would have negatively affected her. But if she is mentally ill, you kind of wonder if she was even aware. I don't know. She seems to have a deep and abiding hatred for him. Yeah, so I, I don't know. Uh, I have theories. But anyway, I mean, nothing that's <laughs> so confirmed in the text. He decides, okay, well, everyone here knows that we're married and my life is ruined and this is terrible. But if I move her back to England and don't let anybody know that I'm married... I can just kind of take care of her and do my duty, but try to have a semi-normal life. So that's what he does. He gets her hidden up in the top of his house and hires a servant to take care of her and be her nurse. And he tells the other servants some semblance of the truth, but not that he's actually married. And he goes off and he has several mistresses, one of which is um, Adele's mother, but a couple others... But it's just not right for him. And it's not until he's met Jane 
that he realized what he was missing in his life and he's so in love with her and oh my goodness yeah oh my goodness his little nun and he's like don't you see jane and she's like yeah i see and this is really terrible for you but i can no longer be your child bride sorry yeah she listens to his whole story and she is sympathetic, but she kind of channels Helen again. Yeah. She's at this point where she's like, no, I tried to embrace passion. I tried to embrace the life of today. And it bit me in the ass. And it is not to be. In the form be. of a crazed wife. I must now go back to my previous way of thinking. And he just talks and talks and talks to her and he's in denial and he thinks that she's going to change her mind and stay with him and she's just like nope 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 she goes back to her room and she decides there and then i cannot stay any longer because if i do he may manage to convince me that everything's fine and that is not right she's decided what is right and what is right is not to stay with rochester and so she packs up a very small amount of things and takes off in the night and she travels sleeps in a ditch yeah, she sees what being poor with no options really looks like in the countryside. Takes a coach that charges her the whole amount of money that she possesses that she took with her. Because she gives it to him. She's like, how far will this all get me? And I'm like, shouldn't you hold some of yeah. it back? Yeah, she gives him all her money. She accidentally leaves her stuff in the coach. So now she has literally nothing except the clothes on her back. And she's wandering about and she's embarrassed to ask for help or anything. And the people that she does petition to are very distrustful of her and just disgusted by her and get away from me. Yes, you're poor, therefore distressed. And she just wanders and wanders and she spends days, like several days outside. Yeah. I think she eats twice during this time period. She's just wasting away and she just wants to die. And finally, she wanders to this house and she sees three women inside talking. One of them is an older woman and two of them are younger women that appear to be sisters. And the older woman appears to be a servant and they're chatting. And Jane is just like looking in on this life going like, this is so interesting. I wish I could be in that life. I wish that was me. <laughs> so she manages to ask for food and the older woman is like, no, no, you get off now. Although she does give her a shilling. <laughs> so she did give her a little bit of charity. <laughs> but she's very creeped out. She's like, no, you can't come in. And Jane begs to talk to the two mistresses of the house. And the older woman is like, no, fuck off. And Jane's like, oh, I will die here. It's raining. It's terrible. And she's lying on the stoop of the house and just wasting yeah. away. And then someone shows up and it's the man of the house the older woman like greets him and says hey you know you better watch out there was a beggar out here earlier and then she looks down and she's all oh she's still here yeah no off with you and the man is like no no you did your job now i must do mine and see what's going on with this lady and so he lets jane in and they give her a tiny amount of food and stuff she's been wasting away for so long he doesn't want her to be sick and he tries to question her, and Jane refuses to answer his questions. No, because she doesn't want Rochester to find her, because she doesn't want to fall into temptation. Well, it's partly that, and partly that she's just so wasted away. Maybe. I mean, she did expend all of her energies. So they end up putting her up for a few days, and taking care of her, and the two young ladies turn out to be actually sisters, and the young man is actually their brother. 
And the two young ladies drop in on her and take care of her. And Jane finally is reinvigorated to a certain amount where she's able to get dressed and come downstairs. And she kind of makes friends with the housekeeper. And she makes friends with the, the younger ladies. They like her a lot. They kind of adopt her like a pet almost. <laughs> They're really nice, though. Their names are Mary and Diana. And then their brother is named St. John. St. John is a clergyman. And he is very much like Helen. I think if Helen had survived, they would be a great pair. I think they would have been well suited. (laughs) He's the male version of Helen. Anyway, he kind of holds himself aloof from her. But he questions her, finds out a little bit about her. She, She gives them her history up to a point. But she also says her name is actually Jane Elliott, not Jane Eyre. She also won't tell them about, like, the circumstances that put her in this situation. And he's like, well, what do you want? And she's like, I just want to be independent. I want to have a job. I I need someone to help me. And he's like, you do realize that any help I might give you is going to be crappy compared to some people because I'm poor. And she's like, your help is better than no help. Yeah. Time passes. She becomes friends with Mary and Diana But eventually it must come to a close because Mary and Diana have to go off back to work because they're both governesses. St. John is planning to go on a mission and be a missionary instead of just a clergyman. Jane is just kind of like, okay, well, did you figure out what I could do? And he's like, oh, yeah, I figured that out a long time ago. But I figured you were having fun here. I've already got your life planned. Just say yes. Thanks, St. John. Appreciate you figuring out what I want and need. Love it. She doesn't have a whole lot of <laughs> a whole lot of room to... negotiate there considering (laughs) she's there solely because of his charity she still stands her ground which is good so he says he'd opened a school for the townspeople for the boys and he plans to open a school for the girls and he wants her to be the teacher and she accepts and he's like yeah it's gonna really suck it's not gonna be anything you're used to and she's like that's fine I will do it. It will be great. She had said, like, when Rochester asked her about the future, she said she wanted to run a school. So she's actually getting what she wanted, allegedly. She enjoys it to an extent. I mean, initially, she is a little put off by the people because they're poor and ignorant and whatnot. But she realizes, no, they're actually good and they can be taught. (laughs) You mean they're poor and they can learn? What? Poor people have good points? Who knew? All right. So she settled in. There was a point, I don't know if it was after she became the school marm or before, but they got a letter, the siblings did, that a relative of theirs had died and decided to leave his fortune to the other heir and not them. And they're like, well, that really sucks ass. We also have like this whole storyline where St. John is in love with this beautiful, young, rich lady who's very kind, but kind of vapid supposedly, but he is denying the passion of the flesh (laughs) because it is only temporary. He's got his vocation. There's this point where the young lady that St. John is in love with comes and visits Jane at the school and she finds out that she can draw and asks if she can sit for a portrait with Jane and Jane starts drawing her and she quite enjoys it. And then later St. John comes by and sees the drawing that Jane is doing of his love. And he's very <laughs> into it. Like he's very transfixed by it. And she's like, well, do you want me to make one for you? Because I could. No, she's trying to play matchmaker. She thinks that he should stay. He should marry her. It would be good for him. 
but he does not want to give up his vocation. And he knows that this young lady, Miss Oliver, would not be a good missionary's wife because she's used to the finer things. She's not a worker. (laughs) He needs someone who can be worked to the bone and treated like a tool. (laughs) What every woman wants to hear. Can I treat you like a tool? (laughs) Sorry. Sometimes I just can't stop. Dude. So then he's like, no, let me look at the picture for 15 minutes and then I will deal with it. So he sets his watch down and he, yeah, he just sits there and stares at the picture for 15 minutes. And then he's like, okay, here's your picture back. But then as he's handing it back to her, he sees the blank paper that she's been using to rest her hand on as she draws. And he's like, oh, that's very interesting. And he rips off a little piece of it and scurries away. And Jane's like, um, okay, well... Apparently, (laughs) she doodled Jane Eyre on that little slip of paper without knowing as she was testing colors and such. And he saw Jane Eyre and he thought, oh, that's very interesting because I got a letter from a lawyer looking for Jane Eyre because she's just received an inheritance. And they contacted me to see if I knew where she was. And so he comes back to her and he tells her this. This is a very interesting story. Maybe you have some part in this. <laughs> Jane Eyre having a part in Jane Eyre. Yeah. Hmm. Turns out that the relative that he had that died, that left the fortune to the other heir instead of his family, left it to Jane Eyre. It was Yay. Mr. Eyre, her uncle, who was her mother's brother and their father's brother. Imagine that. Yep. So Jane finds out she inherited some, in that time, enormous amount of money. And she's just like, oh my goodness, I can't possibly have all this money. I must split it four ways and share it with you since you are my family. She finally has family. That's all she wanted. She just wanted the family. Mary and Diana adopt her full on. Like they're like, yeah, you're our sister now. We love you. And she asks St. John if she can be his sister. And he says she can, (laughs) but he still holds her at a distance. See, here's the thing. I was kind of wanting to marry you, and that makes you being my sister a little weird for me. Yeah, okay. So let's talk about that, because (laughs) some more time passes. They get the money all split up. It's all fine. They're all happy, and Jane is, like, getting ready to celebrate the holidays with her new family. She's just so happy. It's exciting. And then she goes off on a walk with St. John, and he proposes to her. But boy, is it the most glorious proposal ever. (laughs) I think it rivals Rochester's, to be honest. It's shitty, but in a completely different way. He's a completely different guy. Yeah, well, you know. He found found the way to make it shitty all in his own. New flavor of asshole. Ew, I don't want to think about asshole flavors, but yeah. Ew? (laughs) Different, different type of asshole. Okay, so St. John, he's a nice guy. He is. But he's also very much like, no, no, pleasures of the flesh are bad. I must devote my life and existence only to serving God. And the only way I can do that is going on a mission to India. And I need someone to go with me. And you, Jane, are the perfect missionary's wife because you're a hard worker and you never complain. Mm. And I can push you past your limit and you go with it. And it's great. I love it. And there's all this textual evidence where he's been testing her this whole time. Oh, here, Jane, you said you're going to do these things. Are you going to do them? Oh, well, it's raining and horrible out. Are you still going to do them? Oh, good. Oh, good. 
Okay. Like, here, Jane, I think you should learn this other language that you're not interested in because I want to learn it. Good little Janie. She does it. Yeah, she just goes with it. And she tries. She tries so hard. She wants to live up to his ideal. She wants to earn his affection. She's back at the Reed's house. She wants him to love her and accept her. And he won't. He will under a condition. No, he he will never accept her. He is trying to mold her into this shape. And she knows deep in her heart that if she accepts his proposal and goes off to India and is, is, is the ideal missionary's wife, she's going to die. She's going to be broken inside. Yeah, that's where she gets those premonition things. She decides, you know, okay, I could go to India with you as your sister, but not as your wife. Well, that's not good enough for him. He wants her to be his wife because he wants to own her. And he can't own her if she's his sister. I'm not totally familiar with the social rules of the time. I don't know if he could travel with her. Could he? And it'd be socially okay? I know he doesn't want to, but like... I don't think so. They are cousins, but they're also able to marry? Because rules then? I think he'd have to find a third party to come with them. Okay. And he does say that he could give her to this other family to go with them instead if she won't marry him. Yeah, but she doesn't want to go just to go. Yeah, she wants to go to help him. But she doesn't want to go with anyone else. So if he were going to compromise with her whatsoever and still get her to go, he would have to have a third party come and be a chaperone. Yeah. That's not his chief concern. His chief concern is that she would still be marriageable and able to leave. Yeah. He wants to trap her. He wants to lock her down. Oh, yeah. And I found this just so distasteful because it was just completely loveless. And he's telling her this like, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first time when I read Jane Eyre, I... I didn't think it was that bad. But then the second time I'm like, oh, no, that really is much worse. I think Rochester just made such an impact that I was like, well, it's better in this way. I mean, Rochester is flawed, but at least he loves her. That's debatable. But yeah. I think he loves her. I'm glad you think that. I don't know that he's good at loving her, but I think he loves her. St. John doesn't. St. John just wants to use her. Yeah. Now, Rochester wants to use her as well, but he also loves her. St. John... We'll use her until she's a broken, dried up husk of a person and dies. And Jane wants to be desired. Jane wants to be loved. Well, I think it's both. I think she has to be careful how she says that given the time period. It's not like she can say, you know, I want to be wanted for myself and be a sexual being and all of that. I mean, she can't say that given the time period. There's no way that would not have been published. <laughs> she wants to have a, a loving, romantic relationship with a husband if she does get married she doesn't want to have this relationship of convenience yeah and she basically tells him that she's like no i will not go with you as your wife i will go with you as your sister that's it and he's like in denial he's like okay well okay well you can think about it and he stays a whole week extra because he was supposed to go off to say goodbye to some friends he stays a whole week extra at home To make sure that she knows how shitty it is to know that he doesn't, he's not happy with her right now. And it's really fucked up. He's really manipulative and horrible. Blatantly so. He's trying to force her to accept his proposal. She does not want to. The night before he leaves to go say goodbye to his friends, he he confronts her again and is like, so have you made up your mind? You said you were going to go to India regardless. And she's like, I did not. I said I would go to India as your sister. I didn't say I would go any other way. 
And he's all, well, may God have mercy on your soul. You can think about this while I'm gone. Uh. He prays on her. She starts getting all caught up in this religious fervor. And he's starting to have an impact on her. And it's really creepy. And she's just like all caught up in it. And she's like starting to worry. Oh, no, I am going to accept his proposal. Oh, gosh. She starts praying. And then she hears Rochester's voice calling for her and she's just searching for him but he's not there and I think St. John misinterprets this because he he leaves and he's like yep you'll accept when I get back I know you will he leaves and then Jane decides okay well I have to go find out what happened to Rochester I have to she packs a bag she tells Mary and Diana where she's going she says I'll be back in a little while she travels back although this time she's more comfortable because she does have money Yay. She is a lady of means now. She has independence. And she goes all the way back to Thornfield. And she's up at the top of that hill. And she looks down. And she just sees a burnt out shell of a house. She's like, what happened? And she realizes, well, this is why no one (laughs) answered my letters. She'd been writing letters trying to figure out what happened to Rochester after she left. No one has ever answered. And she's like, well, I guess they never got delivered (laughs) because the house is burned down. She goes back to town. She talks to somebody there. Oh, yeah. Do you know about Thornfield? Yeah. What happened over there? And she gets this whole story. The person she's talking to starts telling her 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 own life story. He fell in love with a governess. And she's all, yeah, yeah, no, skip to the fire, please. But it's titillating. (laughs) Turns out that Rochester's insane wife set the whole house on fire and then climbed up to the roof of the house. And Rochester at great risk of life and limb, rescued everybody that he could, and then went up to try to rescue his insane wife. And she jumped off the roof of the house and splatted on the ground. And then Rochester fell and got crushed and is now blinded and lost one of his hands. And now he lives on this other property that he owns. And Jane's like, oh, I must go to him. Do you have a coach? I will pay you twice your usual fare. She gets a ride to the other place where Rochester's now living and she sees him and they reunite. At first, he doesn't quite know, like he doesn't quite believe that she's there because he's been longing for her this whole time. He's just been pining. He's been a wreck of a man since she's left, especially so now that he's blinded and such, you know, he has nothing else going for him whatsoever. He just lives in this house by himself with two servants, hating his life, wishing for Jane. Where's my Jane? (sighs) On Monday night, he had called out for her, Jane, Jane. And then he seemed to have heard her voice saying, I'm coming, which is what she had said when she heard Jane, Jane. So across a hundred miles or so, their souls spoke to each other. She says she'll see him in the morning. She goes to bed. In the morning, they get up, they go around. He's very happy that she's back, but he's also still very cautious. I think he feels at this point like, I have absolutely nothing to offer her. I am a shell of a man. Yeah, he's Mr. Husky. (laughs) Ew. He wants to know what happened while she was gone. She tells him an abridged version of what happened like her adventures and he like seizes upon the name saint john and wants to know all about this man that she was with and is just so sure that she's in love with the saint john and oh he's definitely wants to marry her and jane's like yeah i know he proposed and i told him no and he does not believe her and 
she kind of uses his own trick against him in a way. She's a little kinder about it of than course. he was, of course. He was not kind whatsoever, but she decides, oh, I will use jealousy to revive him. Yeah. She wants him to ask her to stay as his wife again. And eventually he does. He asks her to marry him. She accepts. They're so happy. They get quietly married. They go out one day and get married. And then they come home and they're like, yeah, we're married. And the servants are like, oh, that's what you did. Okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. And then some time passes and we finish the story 10 years in the future. She talks about how she has had at least one child with him. He's regained sight in one of his eyes. So the future is a little bit brighter than it was before. And they're together and happy. The end. So there are a few themes in this book. We kind of touched on them. There's the passion versus austerity. The Helens and St. John's of the world versus the Rochester's. Yeah. And Jane trying to navigate between the two. Who does she want to emulate more? Does she want to live on the earthly plane or the heavenly plane? Something that really stuck with me is that choice that she made to leave Rochester because she did not want to leave at all. It broke her heart to leave. When she makes the choice to leave, she tells him that she knew that it was wrong, like it would be wrong to stay under those circumstances before she was impassioned and entreated to stay and it was fraught with emotion and whatnot. Now that she's in the moment, she needs to rely on the decisions that she made before the feelings came. I want to know what you think about the idea that feelings should have no impact on the choices we make. I think it's impossible to make a decision without feelings. Without taking them into account, humans are their feelings, for better or for worse. (laughs) But that's what Jane aspires to in that moment, is to not be a slave to her feelings. There's the vilifying of feelings, because if she did give in to her feelings, she'd have to give in to the hedonism, all of the things that she has been instructed are bad. And so... I can understand why she's trying to make a dispassionate choice, but I don't think her choice is without feelings. I think she's she's choosing the feelings that she thinks she can live with, and she's trying to do what she perceives as right for whatever afterlife she is expecting to have or wants to have for both of them too. Yeah, because she's worried about his soul as well. She thinks hell is real and she doesn't want him to go. Even if you'd be like, light the fires, it's fine. So do you think she is feeling feelings and she's in denial of them? That this choice is a feeling choice? She cannot make a choice without feelings. I think she is choosing the choice that she thinks will have less hurt and more benefit. Not to be too personal on the podcast, but I was in a position years ago where I made a choice that I felt well, it's logical. So it doesn't matter how I Mm. feel, Mm -hmm. which isn't the same as Jane because she's like, Mm -hmm. well, this is the moral choice, right? But to an extent, it's similar. This is the logical choice. This is the moral choice. She's using a rubric and making a choice. And I denied my feelings on the matter. And that ended up biting me in the butt and impacting me and my, my well-being greatly for years so i kind of wonder like because i kind of relate to her in that Mm -hmm. moment and i kind of like see from my my point of view which which is (laughs) she's she's different (laughs) and she's fictional but from my point of view 
I'm just seeing this going, no, no, you have to take your feelings into account. But you're saying she is? I think she is. Yeah, I was totally caught up in it. I believed that she tried not, like, I believe that she wasn't. I think that she thinks she isn't. I don't know if I'm correct. And I guess, I don't even know, honestly, if we asked Bronte, if she would know. Yeah, true. (laughs) I don't think she is a dispassionate authoress. She definitely infused her life in this story a lot. It's not an autobiography of Bronte. It's not. But it's easy to see where she was like, oh, this is this character is very likely influenced by this person in her life. She wrote what she knew. And she wrote what she felt. I think that's why certain scenes are so poignant, like being around Bertha. If one can believe what evidence we have of her life. She modeled that behavior off of her brother, who was not in a good way. And so that that's why some of those scenes can be so impactful. As I was reading this book, initially, I was just like, oh, it's so sad. Oh, her life is so depressing. But there was a point after Lowood where I just was gripped by it. And I think it was probably just due to the the authorship of Bronte. I think that she did just such a good job of making the characters real and making the actions real. And everybody in this mm-hmm. book is complex. Like there's no, I mean, I know you hate Rochester, <laughs> but he's not 100% bad. No, he's not. Bad. I'd love it if he is because then I could hate him more. None of these people are 100% bad. Like even St. John, who's like pressuring her to marry him and be a be in a loveless marriage and move to India and die an early death by working herself to the bone. He's not 100% no, bad. he's not. And the people who spurned her when she needed help, they weren't 100% bad either. Yeah, no. There's, there's so much. It's very rich. It is. And I know it's very easy to take apart certain characters, but like Helen, that was modeled after her sister. Like we talk about Jane having it rough. Charlotte did not have it easy. Her life is tragic and her family's, or at least tragic by today's standards. I'm not familiar with everyone in that town, so I don't know how, what the average was. You can't really compare tragedy. Tragic is tragic. But like the Lowood <laughs> school, that's... It's not a contest. That was modeled after the school she went to and was pulled from that her sisters died in or died because of. In fact, I guess she wrote it so accurately that someone who lived in the town was like, hey... I think that guy's Brockerhurst, although he had a different name. And like, <laughs> isn't that the school? And Charlotte overheard that. <laughs> was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Whoopsie. Unfortunately, I don't think the quote unquote Lowood was an isolated thing. So I think there were a lot of, I hope there weren't a lot, but there probably were a lot of people in towns that were like, isn't that our school? I kind of suspect so. Yeah. Getting back to, to emotions, I don't think... Jane makes a dispassionate choice. I think she she makes a choice that she thinks she's not going to have to feel the most pain. And she wants to do the best for everybody, for their their souls on the earthly plane, as well as the heavenly one. And she, again, makes the sacrificial choice to be like, I will take this burden. I will take this away from him. He doesn't have to, to choose or anything. And he can rant and scream and whatever. And, and I will take this hurt and I will go. And and it seems like, too, in romances, too, it's like, I have all these feelings, but the other character doesn't have all these feelings. They they can't love me as much as I love them. And for Jane, it really feels 
accurate to her character for her to think that because she's grown up feeling so unlovable. And wanting to be or wanting to aspire to be martyr-like. She wants that life of servitude. So, how's the audiobook? I really enjoyed the audiobook. It was narrated by Thandi Newton. I think she did an amazing job. I was really impressed. In fact, I told you about it beforehand. Yes, I listened to part of it. I was like, she must have won awards. It was just amazing. I will completely re-listen when I'm in the mood for Bronte. Yeah, I need to finish listening because she did. She infused it with a lot of passion, a lot of personality. Yeah, every character too. I mean, you were talking about, you know, the characters in Bronte's story are not one-dimensional and Newton handles that well, expertly. Yeah, she was great. Are you happy for their happy (laughs) i'm happy for jane (laughs) i guess it's this weird kind of like quasi happy i feel like jane definitely earned her happily ever after i think raunchy got lucked into his (laughs) you know it's not so much that he earned it he basically was judged by bronte his god and then it was like okay he's he's his slate is clean now I could be mistaken, but I think the time period was very much like, oh, he lost this hand because of bigamy or infidelity. Like, his injuries are synonymous with the sorts of injuries one should accrue, earn, to be, quote-unquote, righted in the eyes of of God. I'm glad he saved other people. (laughs) I'm glad he takes care of Adele. And I do think you're right that if he honestly thought that she was his daughter, he would claim her. But yeah, he also then picks on Adele, which I don't know if he's doing because he's being playful or he's using playfulness to like mask assholery because he does it a little bit with Jane, but he does it with Adele too. He doesn't do it to her face, but yeah, he does talk about how Adele is like a very normal child. He just, I don't like him. I know you don't, but we're talking about Rochester right now. We're talking about they're happy. But that's how I feel. I just, I don't feel like he was worthy of happy. (laughs) I think of it differently than Bronte did. Oh, I cut off your hand. Ergo, you're worthy of happiness. It's like, no, that's weird logic. <laughs> I know it's another frustrating oh, yeah, yeah. reply, I'm sure. I'm used to it at this point. Um, for me, I think I am, honestly. I think, Yay! I think they are twin souls. And I think Bronte did a good job of showing how alike mm-hmm. they are. The age difference squicks me out. And Rochester's behavior squicks me out. But... I do feel like they're suited and I do feel like they got to know each other and spend time together. And yeah, a lot of it was spent while he was lying to her. And I know you'll probably disagree with this, but I think that he really only lied a little bit. I don't think he lied about his depth of feeling and what he wanted for her and what he wanted for their life together. I think he was caught up in the fantasy of it and didn't want to let go of the fantasy. And he was lying to himself as well. So, yeah. Okay. I think they earned their happy. Oh, good. Let's rate them. (laughs) Do you want to rate Rochester or Jane first? Let's do Jane. Because we usually do the heroine first. How do you rate Jane? I put Jane as awesome and that she needs some therapy. I think she needs to maybe draw out her feelings or something. Maybe some (laughs) art therapy. I think she will get to be the being that she wants to be. Which is probably why the story has to end there, because time period. Which is a more impassioned creature. She'll be able to to show emotions and things like that. And it's it's really unfortunate that we don't get to see more of that. 
but there's no way that would have been published. When this was published, it was not published under Charlotte Bronte. It was published under a, at best... Androgynous pseudonym. Yeah. It's supposed to be Guy, but I think they felt bad about lying, so her and her sisters were like, hmm. They couldn't figure out if the Brontes were one being or, or the Bells, because they published under the Bells. But yeah, one one reviewer was like, well, if this was written by a man, then it's amazing. Basically, I'm paraphrasing. But if it was written by a woman, then she's unsexed. Like, there's something wrong with her. Because no woman could write this passionately. (laughs) How dare a woman have any feelings whatsoever? They're just automatons. They are tools for men's pleasure. So it just, it frustrates me because I I would love to see that Jane Eyre. But even in spite of that, I think what she is able to endure through the course of her life and get through however she does it, I feel like she's awesome. She sets her boundaries throughout the book. I am going to do this. I am not going to do this. She is proactive. I think it was the first time that a young, a child character was allowed to be a protagonist, which allegedly Charles Dickens was like, hmm, a child protagonist? Interesting. But yeah, I mean, it was certainly ahead of its time. Jane Eyre was a character ahead of her time in some ways. I don't know. I don't know how well she ages now. I agree with you. I think she's awesome. I also agree with you that I would have liked to see her grow into the woman that she was growing to be. (laughs) Like, I want to see that that come into fruition. The seeds are there. They've been planted. They've been growing. They've been fertilized and tended. We don't get to see the bloom. It's very yeah, frustrating. Well, she would have been unacceptable then. Yeah, I believe that it exists, though. I believe that she goes on to bloom and all the groundwork is there. She is a bit of a frustrating character because she's mm-hmm. very naive. But I really enjoyed her inner dialogue. I really enjoyed her <laughs> little snappy mm-hmm. responses. I appreciated that she did have her boundaries and whether or not I agreed with them. She stood by what she believed was right and ended up choosing passion. Yeah which I thought was amazing. I was very concerned when I first started reading. I was worried that she was going to become a bloodless (laughs) alkalite of the likes of Helen and St. John. And I'm very gratified that she did not. I mean, she was, she was naive, but she wasn't foolish. I didn't think. And I think that was good way to handle it. Cause so many times, so many naive characters are then also exceedingly foolish and it just gets a little irritating. Yeah. Naivete does not mean stupid. It really doesn't. Okay, so how would you wait? Wait? How would you wait a hero? I can't talk. We've only been at this for four hours. <laughs> More, actually. Sorry. That's okay. I, I have a lot to say, and I didn't say it all because you cut me yeah. short. I felt like I had to say something, and I wasn't sure when. No, I, I, I get it. I don't know that anyone wants to listen to us to expound <laughs> on Jane Eyre for five plus hours. Well, we do this for us. That is what I was led to believe. <laughs> yes. We'll do it until it's not fun anymore for us. Yes. So for Rochester, I have to rate him awesome. I am not in love with him. I don't think he is the man He's not for the me. fictional man of your dreams. But he is so complex. Mm-hmm. And Bronte made me feel so many feelings about him. Hatred, <laughs> empathy, pain. I don't know. He just... He grew on me like a fungus, M. I'm glad that you had such a good experience. Yeah, and I was prepared <laughs> I to hate influenced him. you, maybe. <laughs> I was predisposed to hate him, but I think he is Mr. Grumpy Pants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was worried 
that he was just going to be this manipulative, horrible person, but he has more to him than that. And he was just so well written and so interesting. I would really like to get in his head. I would love to read if Bronte <laughs> could write from beyond the grave, a version from Rochester's point of view. I would love that. That would be cool. What about you? I rated him as awfully creepy. Because although, <laughs> although I completely agree that he is complex and interesting, he's still makes me go oh yeah i mean he's just like 20 years older than jane and mind fucks her eternally i guess that's the thing too is like at no point does he like woo her or court her or anything it's just like fuckery 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 marry me and i'm just like yeah no not after you call her you know little nun and child bride and (laughs) maybe that meant something different than than it means now but i think that was his version of courting Sorry, didn't work. (laughs) Uh, No, I I love Bronte's writing. I mean, that's why I will re-experience Bronte in future. I like it. I find it inspirational. I still don't like him, but I don't have to like him. How do we rate our villains, of which there are many? There are many. I listed three, likely have more. (laughs) I put Mr. Brocklehurst. My, that is a mouthful. Yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah. He's gross. He's awesome at ah. Uh, Mrs. Reed, oh, yes. also awesome at asshole and raunchy because just repellent. I, I appreciate that Bronte wanted to say, regardless of someone's looks or how human they were, because unsaintly, very human, all are deserving of love. You know, I get that. I just ah. Sorry, you're going to have to take out some of those horrible noises. I'm keeping them all. I love the vomit noise. I'm keeping that one too. The moan there. That's staying. (laughs) I should make less noises. Sorry. You make lots of noises. I do. So for me, I agree with you about Brocklehurst, Mrs. Reed, and Rochester. I put them all in the antagonist column as well. I think they were all awesome at being antagonistic. I think Mrs. Reed is the true villain of the story. (laughs) Yeah. Worse than Rochester, because who could do that to a child? Rochester can't. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that is true. That is so true. I also put John Reed, her cousin. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I also put St. John, her other cousin. They are all truly awesome at being antagonistic. Additionally, I list society at large for being distrustful of poor, wanting people, turning poor Jane away, not offering her any pity or suckerage or whatnot. No sucker for you. All the villains are awesome at being villains. I think it's funny that neither you nor I put his first wife on the list. Oh, well, she couldn't help it. I just, I think like in a different time period, it would have been different. <laughs> Especially since she, you know, sets the fires and... Yeah. And I kind of wonder if, if Poole isn't in on it a little. I love her. I love when Jane has that moment where she's like, I'm going to interrogate Mrs. Poole. And Mrs. Poole's just like, oh, she kind of, the way she like manipulates her. Oh, so clever. I love Poole. Yeah, no, I guess it's telling, but (laughs) yeah. Mental illness is not that woman's fault. I feel bad for her. Yeah, no, it's not. I know I've seen like different articles and stuff that 
like, was she really mentally ill or a victim of time period and perception? And then it was interesting when I found out that Charlotte Bronte allegedly based a lot of that behavior on her brother. So it's like, huh. Maybe it's short-sighted of me. Maybe I didn't read enough into the character, but I believe she was mentally ill because when he first was with her, she was distasteful, mm-hmm. but normal. I think... Like, sane. And then she... Slow, like, her behavior I think evolved. If, if it's true that Bronte based it off of her brother, maybe he was mentally ill. It also... His behavior may have been related to addiction. Yeah, that's where possible. Where his behavior started off one way and then... I mean, don't people say addiction is a form of mental illness? That's true. But, I mean, she doesn't have access to what he had access to. Maybe she did. I don't know, actually. I don't know what sort of treatments, if any, were being offered. Also, supposedly, she comes from a family where it's hereditary. Her mother was mentally ill, and at least one of her brothers was mentally ill. So she came from a family that was that tended that way, that had some sort of genetic yeah. predisposition, potentially. I mean, and, and it's hard, because, I mean, this was a book written how many like, hundred and years ago? Yeah. I mean, the way people perceive mental illness now is vastly different. And we have to take Rochester's version of the story to have any real understanding of his wife's disposition whatsoever. Yes. So Again, he could have just divorced her. Of course, you wouldn't have a story then, but... How do you rate the book? I gave the book a 4.5. I do enjoy the writing. I enjoy the story. Of course, it does kind of depend on what mood it meant. Yes, 4.5. What about you? I gave it a 4. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was amazing. But it was really depressing and hard to read because it was depressing. Yeah, there's a lot of... (laughs) (laughs) But it was beautiful. It was depressing but beautiful. Yeah, it makes it difficult. Well, Erica, did you feel romanced? Yeah, I did. I felt romanced by the story, definitely. I feel like the story lured me in because initially I was like, this is a very sad (laughs) book. It's so sad. Oh my god, why am I reading this? Oh yeah, it's for the podcast. Ah, why do I let M talk hey me into reading this book? <laughs> uh, there were several moments where I felt like I was back in my uh, days as a lit major. Past trauma flashbacks. Yeah, a, a bit, yeah. But it lured me in, and once I got about 40% through, I was in i was that's good and i was like i said before i felt the full range of emotion it was amazing and i have lots of modern reservations about jane and rochester's relationship power dynamics and such the age difference the manipulation all that stuff is very nasty and horrible but i guess it's just the way it was written and the fact that she escaped from him and became independent and then returned Mm -hmm. made it better in a way and while i don't feel he was 100 percent redeemed he did suffer the wrath of god whatnot but i don't really see it that way i just think that he finally knew what it was like to live in Mm. reality where he couldn't have exactly what he wanted he couldn't have this fantasy the fantasy left him and i think that was his true punishment Mm. Okay. Before Jane comes yeah. back. And then he ends up getting his fantasy after all. What about you? Did you feel romanced? I was definitely romanced by the writing, but I was not romanced about Jane and Ranji. I don't think that will surprise you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I get that, you know, she has to be brought down 
a little bit from her maybe heavenly aspirations or heavenly mindedness. And he had to be raised up from his very earthly mindedness. And so they had to find a middle where they can be people together. And I do wish, I wish there was more. Because I get to the end each time and I'm just like, but more, were there people? Oh, crap. Because that's it. That's all she wrote. That's, I mean. Yeah, we don't get that She wanted part. to get published. You know, she she wanted to write a, a story that, that took off and it did. It, it was successful in her lifetime, which is great. Yeah. You know, she definitely tapped into to things humans experience, which is why I think it endures. She's definitely talented. I mean, she's an amazing writer. But yeah, I, was, I totally was romanced by the writing, but not not the romantic characters. How terrible is that? I'm bad. Or sad? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it is. It is truth. <laughs> Whatever else it is, I don't know. What else have you been reading? Well, I recently finished uh, Texts from Jane Eyre by Mallory Ortberg. And I think you definitely should read it. And if you're inclined, you should listen to the audiobook. It can be a nice little uplifting thing after... Pitch me. Pitch you? Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so it's not just Jane Eyre. There's conversations with other literary characters. I guess it's based off of Ortberg's popular web web feature. And I must say, if you do do the audiobook version, it's narrated by Zach Via and Amy Landon. I think they had so much fun. I hope they had fun because it sounded like they had a lot of fun. <laughs> so it's basically conversations that are just completely whimsical. It's whimsy made manifest and, and great after Jane Eyre, frankly. E everyone depicted is just resplendent with attitude. Hamlet makes an appearance and he is really bratty, which is great. <laughs> He is kind of bratty. He is. That makes so, sense. So, yeah, his mom goes in, like, or tech, because it's text, of course. Like, I'm going to make you a sandwich. And he's just like, no, I don't want it. Oh, my gosh. I can't. I cannot do it justice. And I, you you just, you have to. You'll love it. The William okay. Blake, I made you a drawing. And his wife was like, is it horrifying? <laughs> the text from Poe, I wasn't staring at the bird. The bird was staring at me. Oh, my God, you'll... You'll just, you'll love it. There's some Austin characters. There's some Sweet Valley High, Babysitter's Club, Nancy Drew. It's just. Oh, wow. Interesting. And like some okay. ancient Greece. So you get a full range. You will laugh. I know you will laugh. Oh, I wish we could listen to it together. <laughs> anyway, what have you been reading? <laughs> I recently finished Blue Coral Ooh. by Naomi Lucas. This is the third book in the Naga Bride series. I think I recommended book one a while ago. Yes, that is podcast. familiar. So yeah, I've since read books two and three. I really enjoyed this one. It was a bit of a departure from the other two mm. because there was an additional male character who was a male human, okay. which was intriguing. The premise of the story is a long time ago, an alien race came to Earth and promised friendship, but then... Something happened and they ended up committing genocide and killing all the humans, except there happened to be some humans in space. And now in the future, these space humans have returned to Earth to find the old technology that the aliens there left because they need it to win this war that they're fighting against some other aliens. But when they get to Earth, they discover that there are snake people who live there. Mm. And these snake people want women. Of course they do. It's always that. I mean, obviously, right? But... 
we get a lot more world building in this book. If you've read the first two books, you'll have gotten hints up to this point and you get some really good payoff on those hints in this book. So definitely recommend the whole series thus far, but I really enjoyed this one. Yeah. All right. So that's it for this time. Check out our website, romancemepodcast.com for show notes, other episodes and our upcoming reads. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Google, Amazon, or Spotify, or find us on Twitter at RomanceMeCast. Speaking of Twitter, were you romanced by Jane and Rochester Story? Let us know what you think, and of course, join us next time when we discuss Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. I have to recover. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I offered a really funny book, and I think it would be a good mental power.